Welcome to Paradise. Hello, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that hopes you have time to listen to us whine about pop culture from the 80s and 90s. <laughs> I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to trade the cash for the beat for the body for the hate, whose time is a piece of wax falling on a termite who is choking on the splinters. <laughs> I've often said that about you. I'm Seth Pearson, the host most likely to want to destroy your sweater. And I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to feel like I'm God, you stupid, dumb shit, goddamn motherfucker. <laughs> She's in a mood today. <laughs> today we are rewinding our cassette tapes all the way back to 1994, a landmark year in alternative music that saw bands like Green Day, Bush, Nine Inch Nails, Weezer, The Offspring, Oasis, and several more break out and hit the mainstream. Several more. Uh, Way yes. more. I'd say Baker's Dozens more. <laughs> <laughs> Strap in, guys. <laughs> so we are going to be taking a look back, or a listen back, to some of the key tracks from 1994 and discussing alternative music in general. Uh, maybe answering some long-standing questions like, what is alternative music? <laughs> in general. What is it the alternative to? All other music? <laughs> Isn't every genre of music an alternative to another genre of music? Okay, Seinfeld, one at a time. <laughs> I did uh, <laughs> end that paragraph with, what does it even mean? <laughs> so I was clearly, what is the deal with the alternative? <laughs> I was going for a thing. So, uh, why 1994? Uh, <laughs> it was 25 years ago. It's a nice round number. Chris, I intentionally avoided learning specifically how many years it has been <laughs> since 1994. Episode 60 of the podcast, and they're pretty much all 25 or 30 or 35. I'm going to tell you the antidote. So <laughs> I, was I was talking to my baby this week, <laughs> and I was singing her songs. <laughs> I was singing her songs from 1997, not 1994, but 1997. And then I was thinking about how she was born in 2018. So that was 21 years difference. And then I realized that her 1997 is my 1962. And then I ran out of the room screaming. <laughs> Did you put your baby down? <laughs> Who knows where she is right now? Okay. okay. But um, yeah, time is messed up. <laughs> Time's a fucker. <laughs> and we've been fucked. 25 years ago. That's a lot of years. It's a millennial. It's a millennial's <laughs> worth of time. Yeah. Of course, every memory of this is going to be associated with something that happened in our childhood. But really, this, more in particular than most other episodes, I think probably because it's so year-specific, really hit me harder than most. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Well, not just you. Uh, 1994 was a crazy year. Uh, it was the year that Tanya Harding attacked Na Nancy mm. Kerrigan, or... Maybe allegedly attacked. We don't know. O.J. Simpson's Bronco Chase. Paula Jones' lawsuit against Bill Clinton, which kicked off his whole sexual misconduct allegations that obviously went on for longer than that. It was also a really big year in music. Michael Jackson married Lisa Marie Presley. Madonna made her infamous appearance on Letterman. Pearl Jam battled Ticketmaster. And Kurt Cobain committed suicide, which I'm sure will come up later in this episode. You forgot that Jim Carrey spoke out of his ass. <laughs> <laughs> that was an important moment in music. Well, yes, we have previously covered 1994 in the context of only Jim Carrey. So right. this is a slightly broader uh, topic. Yeah, and we're going to have an anal-only episode later on <laughs> we gotta save that for that one that has not been cleared with the other hosts <laughs> when we were young after dark 
1994 was also the 25th anniversary of Woodstock, so another 25 <laughs> years back. <laughs> One Woodstock later, here we are. <laughs> so we are two. We are two. 25 years away from Woodstock. 50 years. Yes. <laughs> We're two Woodstocks gone, Chris. But as far back as 1994 was, one more back is Woodstock, you guys. Woodstock. <laughs> <laughs> When we're, we're old, God. We're, we're going to have to make a comparison chart with the height differential between us as people in Woodstock. <laughs> <laughs> like in a history book, you'd see it with like a human versus a T-Rex. <laughs> there was also a Woodstock in 1994 for the 25th anniversary. Uh, it was held over two days in August with acts like Green Day, Nine Inch Nails, Violet Femmes, Cheryl Crow, Aerosmith, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Salt and Pepper, Blind Melon... Metallica and Bob Dylan all performing for a crowd of over half a million people. So it's a very eclectic mix of everyone who was everyone, basically, in 1994. During, I think it was the 94 Woodstock, Green Day was playing When I Come Around, and someone threw mud at him, and so he ate it, and it created a giant mud fight. So I guess mm, that, yes. like, mud has long been associated with Woodstock. Yeah. The main reason we're doing this episode on 1994 is just because there was so much stuff that came out in 1994. It's kind of crazy. When I was just, like, looking over over this year, I was about a third of the way through, and I was like, wow, we have to do an episode on that, because like, I can't believe that all these things came out like at the same time. But like, not just albums coming out, but like the debuts of bands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things that really like broke out and are still like very iconic. Really iconic. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it iconic? <laughs> Don't and <think>. to prove it, <laughs> I have a source. I have previously mentioned on the podcast the radio station, <laughs> 107.7, The End, KNDD, The Cutting Edge of Rock, which I listened to. It was a Seattle radio station uh, that was part of the founder of the grunge movement. In 1999, The End played a countdown of the 1,077 greatest songs of all time. Heavily mired in rock and and grunge and that that sort of thing. It was nothing from the 60s, I don't think, made it. But I remember listening to it at the time. Four of the top ten were from 1994. So even, like, the authority sort of on alternative music, like, kind of recognized that, like, 40% of those songs were from this particular year. What was number one? I will tell you, the ones from 1994 are number nine, Soundgarden's Black Hole Sun. Number six, The Offspring's Self-Esteem. Number five, Green Day's Longview. Number two, Beck's Loser. And then number one was, can you guess? Rock song. Was it from 1994 then? No, it wasn't. Oh, okay. What year was it from? 91. 91. I don't know, like November Rain? I don't know. Nirvana. Smells like Teen Spirit. Smells like Teen Spirit. Yeah. I was trying trying to think of something epic. What was number seven? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you after the podcast. (laughs) Sounds like you did incomplete research. Why did I guess November (laughs) What? No, honestly, though, the moment you said it, I was like, oh, that makes total sense, Becky. No. I'm as surprised as you are. I introduced this as the Seattle Grunge radio station. (laughs) Well, I thought it was obvious. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) What is alternative music? (laughs) It emerged as an alternative to mainstream rock in the 70s and 80s, referring to punk rock, underground music, and independent artists who weren't part of major labels. Which is kind of weird because when we think of alternative music, like we are thinking of the artists that we're talking about in this episode, who all pretty much were part of major labels. So even though that was sort of the original term, it has shifted a lot from that since then. 
I think one of the reasons it's hard to define alternative is that it encompasses so many different subgenres. So grunge, emo, punk, indie, pop rock, all of those are associated along with plenty of other genres. So I've always felt like alternative was not very well defined. And I was just like, I like alternative, which I guess means I kind of just like rock because I think alternative rock was the mainstream rock for a long time. Like what? Okay, so if you were thinking of alternative rock is like what we're talking about today, what was mainstream rock at the time? Like Like Springsteen. Like Bruce, yeah, like Queen? But that kind of stuff wasn't really that popular for the most part. Like, especially like when we were teenagers, like there was no When we were teenagers, that was already classic rock. Yeah, That was its own genre designation. Uh, My contention is that alternative rock was always just a corporate marketing term for a basket of different genre acts that were not, you know, like pop, that were not you know, hip hop or anything like else, like, or country, like any other specific genre, anything that didn't fit in any other specific broad genre like that, I think would just get kind of tossed into the alternative pile. You know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of like, at the time, like Van Halen (laughs) is, is mainstream rock. That was kind of like called hard rock. Like there's other rock that's like metal kind of. So there's, there's a lot of kinds of rock, but I don't feel like any of the rock is just rock. (laughs) Well, but I feel like specifically Nirvana became the first mainstream band that got coined as alternative. And then kind of everything that followed, followed in the wake of their popularity. I don't think alternative had or has any broader definition than that. Yeah, I think you might be right that alternative is mainly, like, it sounds cool because it's like, ooh, I'm not part of the mainstream, I'm alternative, Mm -hmm. even though this was the mainstream rock music for when we were teenagers. So there wasn't really that much else to listen to that was in this genre at all. Wait, but this this was before we, we were teenagers, like, this is when we were in, like, elementary school, but, like, this even defined the popular music for that time when we were, like, in high school. Yeah, I think, because I started listening to it when I was a teenager, so that's the association I have. Yeah, we were, this was, like, 1994, so we were about, like, 10, 11, 12, around when this was coming out. I'll tell you what I think alternative rock is, just subjectively. Mm. Something more like mainstream rock compared to what we're calling alternative rock isn't as deep. It's more about just general, easily uh, swallowed subject matter kind of like the the pop what you think of like pop music but just like with a harder edge to make it rock but alternative Mm -hmm. is more vulnerable and maybe edgier or the things that they're talking about are more emotional or getting in touch with their feelings more and being more honest about things versus something i keep saying van halen but that's the number one (laughs) thing i can think of that is more like we're just kind of singing about something very generic or you know superficial and the alternative acts are actually getting more poetic I think yeah I would kind of classify it as they're more confrontational like mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of different styles of music that we're gonna talk about today like like these bands don't really sound like each other for the most part but I would say that they're all challenging things that are acceptable or you know they have a lot of maybe drug references or references to depression or they're just kind of taking on society so yeah I think that they're definitely not meant to be sort of acceptable to your parents like it's supposed to be like stuff that's like for a younger generation 
Yeah, and and I think it's kind of stuff that in one way or another is often very adolescent in not just like the sense of having fans who are teenagers, but like literally like the lyrics and subject matter and the songs are very teenage and they deal with very like Mm -hmm. teenage emotions and issues. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. When I was listening to this, I mean, we'll probably talk about it more as we go on, but I did kind of feel like 1994 was the year that alternative kind of solidified as a genre. Obviously, like, grunge was popular earlier in the 90s and made mainstream by Nirvana and a couple of these other bands. And that was kind of its own thing, and that's part of an alternative movement. When I think of alternative music, I think of, like, all these mishmash of genres that can be punk or they can be kind of, like, Brit rock or, you know, kind of harder edge rock and all those things would play on like the radio station that I listened to because it was all sort of part of this encompassing genre but I think this was kind of the year that that took off and became its own thing apart from Nirvana I think in large part because Kurt Cobain died and there was no more Nirvana So we are about to talk about a lot of bands. Uh, So for, you know, kind of setting this up about when we were young, I think I'll just ask you guys, what was your relationship with alternative music back in the 90s? And what was your genre of choice when you were a kid or teenager? Well, my musical tastes developed in fits and starts, like I've discussed before on the podcast. I started kind of only listening listening to classical music and to like Disney soundtracks and then Andrew Lloyd Webber. Then I branched out into country and eventually into like top 40s pop for a couple months, but then toward <laughs> the alternative radio station in New Orleans. <laughs> Uh, which was 106.7. Not as good. I believe it was also called The End at some point. I think they were like legally required to be called The End mm-hmm. if they were the alternative. <laughs> this radio station, I believe like 1077, like almost all radio stations, was owned by Clear Channel, who now, I believe, also owned Ticketmaster. All of these companies are one thing now, but they certainly dominated radio. And so this was kind of the time when alternative became a defined genre in music, was also around the time that I started listening to new music on the radio pretty regularly. It was also the time in my youth when I would watch music videos. They were usually music videos on VH1. I would also be introduced to a lot of new music from my friends at school because they would have Walkmans, Walksman, I'm not sure the correct term. It would mostly be through, you know, portable CD players. Listening to these songs was a series of head trips. I just had so many moments of returning to broad sets of like how it felt to like grow up at the time and listen to these songs for the first time, but also some just really specific moments in my life when I got introduced to these particular songs. What about you, Becky? I like Disney. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is that your preferred genre? Broadway. Well, 1994 was still a year before uh, Colors of the Wind was released. It was, but it was the Lion King year. Yes, it was. (laughs) Oh, I was... I, I hit the Disney Renaissance right at the right age, man. Um, <laughs> Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, Punch, 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 Punch. She's punching them all. <laughs> yeah. But that's when, like... So violent. That's when Disney musical... You know, but even, like, the old ones, you know, they all had music. I liked Broadway. I liked very, you know, mainstream pop, like Madonna and Whitney Houston and Cyndi Lauper. But did you listen to alternative Broadway? That's <laughs> <laughs> alternative Disney. What's alternative Broadway? <laughs> they called exactly. it alt-broad. Alternative Disney was Don Bluth. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. 
Alt Disney. <laughs> Alt instead and it was of not as good. No, I did not. When I was 11, I did not listen to any of this. Um, but I remember the one of the very first alternative songs that I was like, I think I like this, was uh, I remember I was at summer camp. And it was just daytime summer camp. Someone else goes I know. summer camping on this um, podcast? And it was Offsprings, what I thought was called Separated. <laughs> it's called Come Out and Play. <laughs> yeah. Parenthesy, keep them separated. There's no parenthesy. No, there's no? No? Nope. Okay, it's just Come Out and Play? Yeah. Okay. I remember hearing that on the radio, and I remember all the, bo- the, the boys liked it. And I almost felt like I wasn't allowed to like it, because it felt much more like teenage or adult, and I was 11, and it felt like a boy thing because it was a boy, like it was a band. I was about to say a boy band, but not a boy band. <laughs> a male band. A, ma- it was a, band a boy of band male people. Yeah. And were, very like punk, which is yeah. was very not traditionally for girls. 11, but of yeah, 11 not, year old girls. That's not a- and I remember hearing it and I think I liked it. But it was very weird because I was like, I don't think I'm allowed to. And I remember flipping through my sister's <laughs> shop. <laughs> Did you like, so you like secretly snuck into like, hearing the hook is really good. So it got in my head, but it was weird because it was like, what am I doing liking this song? <laughs> <laughs> Did anyone ever ask you? I don't know. If you were listening to The Offspring? <laughs> I don't know. Did you really want to be seen and come out and play in the locker room? <laughs> <laughs> um, A young woman does not sing such songs. I'll sing it for you now if you want. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go out on that. <laughs> Meaning I'll go out on that. <laughs> I would flip for my sister's big CD case of bands, and she was four years older than me, and she was into all these bands. So she ha- she had all of Green Day, Aerosmith, Nirvana, like she had all of them. And I would look at their album covers, and some of them were, you know, very like adult, like the Nirvana baby, naked or, babies, or just I remember the In Utero cover was I can never say it right. Um, was like a weird fucked up thing too. I don't remember, like a skeleton or something. It was something weird. It's like a meat angel. It was something weird. Yeah, it's okay. like a, um, yeah. Pearl Jam. Like she had all of them. She had Dookie. I remember Dookie at first looked like it was like a fun cartoon, but it was like apocalyptic things were happening, and there was like a monkey with shit, and it's called. It's basically named after shit. It just felt way adult. But I would like look through them and be like, oh wow, like be kind of intrigued because when you're 11 and you have an older sibling, you like kind of look up to them and you're like wow look at this look at this so i was very intrigued by it but it was many years until i legitimately was like i like this music chris in 1994 i was also heavily <laughs> listening to the lion king as well as rhythm of the pride lands <laughs> which was the follow-up yes, uh, I, had that. Wow. <laughs> I did not pump those jams and i feel like i've been left out it's good stuff wow <laughs> Hakuna Matata (laughs) single's not very good. Was there a sequel? No. Hatuna Matata? (laughs) But I did hear all of this music a few years later on 107.7 The End, who is paying me royalties. (laughs) Each time he has to mention the full name. He's contractually obligated. And for the purposes of this podcast, I looked up the history of that radio station. Oh, God. (laughs) It was established in August 1991, and within a month, Pearl Jam's 10, Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger, and Nirvana's Nevermind were released. So, good timing. (laughs) 
it basically was released right before this movement hit and so was obviously also part of like playing all these songs on the radio and popularizing them so i was in the right place mm-hmm. to Seriously. hear all these all these songs so when i was about 15 i started listening to this music at that point i still had a bedtime so <laughs> I used to go to bed, but they had a countdown of the most requested songs, probably at like 10 o'clock or something. And I would like quietly listen to, you know, the new Smashing Pumpkins or Sublime songs on there. Like I was still sort of not, you know, declaring that I liked this music. I mean, maybe a little like Becky is like, because I was sort of a shy kid at that point and not someone who people would think of as liking alternative music. So it was a little secret for a little while. (laughs) On speakers or on headphones? Um, It was out loud. I didn't have headphones, I guess. It was on, like, I had a little um, alarm clock. So it was just like, I would just turn the volume down. Yeah. And so I don't know if this is a Seattle thing, but at least in my high school, you were very defined by what music you listened Uh, to. Oh, yes. Okay. I'm sure it's still like that. Yeah, probably. So there were the R&B hip hop kids, and that was kind of like the mainstream popular kids. And then there was people who listened to this kind of music and all kinds of punk and, and alternative music. And so that was definitely the crowd that I fell in with, like pretty much around the same time as my friends were listening to this music. So going back to this was just like going back to high school in so many ways. I mean, obviously, yeah, it was like a few years after this actual year, but these songs were on constant rotation on that radio station and that my friends, you know, had caught on to this music earlier. So they were, you know, talking about these bands. And so like slowly I kind of picked up a love for this music. And, you know, a lot of my memories with friends are sitting around listening to these bands, you know, these songs and and, late, and later songs. And a lot of these, like, I didn't even know necessarily who sang the song or, you know, exactly when it was released in the 90s. But it just all kind of like feels like the soundtrack to like my entire adolescence, basically from basically 15 through like graduating high school. And see, that's really interesting because it does make me think about the trajectory of my music taste in high school. This list of songs that we put together for this episode is kind of evenly divided for me between bands that I originally listened to and songs I originally listened to when they came out in 1994 and bands like Live and Weezer that I never listened to until high school. Um, So that's really interesting because I hadn't really thought of that side of it um, before this episode, but it definitely defines my kind of experience because it, it would it would turn out that friends I made in high school had become super fans of these bands when they heard these songs uh, when they were growing up and they got these albums and introduced me to them. Weezer's Blue album was their first album, um, but I didn't hear it until I was in high school. But that was hugely influential on my musical taste and also like what I started playing when I started playing guitar. So yeah, that was another big part of how I experienced these groups growing up. Yeah, when I got into this music, like, it had already been cool for a very long time. It took me a long time to get into it and to sort of be in a place where I was, like, then discovering music along with everyone else in, like, 98, 99. But, like, for, like, the beginning of it, it was just kind of like, oh, this is that thing that everyone's been talking about for a long time. I like it, too. So to set the scene for what was happening in music in general in 1994, the top five U.S. singles were number five, Mariah Carey's Hero. Number four, Celine Dion, The Power of Love. Number three, Boys to Men, I'll Make Love to You. Number two, All for One, I Swear. And number one, Ace of Bass, The Sign. Wow, I loved all of that. 
that. <laughs> That's what I was listening to. Oh, I'm sorry, that before. was Becky's top five. <laughs> that was also I was listening to that too. I feel like there was some overlap with my like top forty and alt love. Okay. I was definitely listening to all yeah. that. Yeah. Ace of Base had two other singles in the top ten. It was a big Ace of Base. Was year. it Don't Turn Around mm-hmm. and All That She Wants? Uh-huh. <laughs> Probably. Yes. Yeah. Do you want me to sing all those three songs? Because I know all the lyrics. So. Save it for our Ace of Bass episode, <laughs> Becky. <laughs> so that's very not alternative. <laughs> uh, no, it's not. So it's interesting that this that there was so much going on in music this year, and yet like the mainstream was still in a very, very different place. Um, the highest charting single that we're talking about today was at number 50, and that was Whoa. Beck's Loser. Whoa. Wait, so, Sorry top 50 in terms of the Billboard, Billboard. 100 yeah. versus the alt charts. Yeah. yeah. So okay. the caveat to that is okay. that um, a lot of, like, the Billboard singles chart only counts songs that were released as singles. And not even just, like, on the radio, but, like, actually released as a single that you could buy. So a lot of alternative music was not released as singles because they wanted to drive album sales. So oh, a lot of these were pretty high album sales, but are not recognized, like, in the actual, like, singles oh, when you look at the year. Yeah, that was something I discovered for this but it makes a lot of sense it really does and again it's like for me getting exposed to a lot of this music through friends playing cd albums whether that was when i was in middle school or in high school you know it's it's interesting because we've talked about the 90s as kind of the height and the beginning of the end for albums as a format the end you say (laughs) 107 the end? What are your royalty checks, Chris? And I get $1.77. What is that split three ways? <laughs> I feel like we're entitled to this payout. It's one penny for you, one penny for <laughs> Becky, and I'll take it. <laughs> So, 1994, there was a major release in every single month of this year. Some more so than others, but yeah, we'll just go chronologically, I guess, and uh, we'll be done in a few hours. (laughs) (laughs) The first major alternative release was Alice in Chains' Jar of Flies on January 25th. It was the first EP to ever top the U.S. album charts and got two Grammy nominations. It was an EP, so it wasn't like one of their major releases, but it kicked the year off in like grunge and alternative things really got off to a rockin's I don't know. <laughs> oh, no! Boo! No! Boo! Chrissy Kasem? <laughs> are you Casey Kasem? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Get ready to enjoy the rockin' sounds. <laughs> this one comes from Cheryl in Minneapolis. <laughs> I don't have a good transition. <laughs> <laughs> Things really started rockin'. Things really started rockin' in the free world. <laughs> We're leaving all this in, so just just go. <laughs> yeah, not cut it out. You'll live with your shame. <laughs> but February proved a little more momentous in alternative with the release of Dookie by Green Day on February 1st. Uh, Green Day was formed in 1986 in Berkeley, California. It consists of Billy Joe Armstrong, Mike Durnt, and Trey Cool. The original name for the band was Sweet Children, (laughs) but they changed it to Green Day because they like marijuana. (laughs) Good for them. (laughs) Uh, The debut single was Longview, so let's take a listen to that. You will. My mother 
We're taking the long view with Green Day. <laughs> so this is a song about chronic masturbation. It was named after the city of Longview in Washington State. So more Washington. Hooray. <laughs> I have never heard of that city, but <laughs> I guess they went there. To me, at least, this is the ultimate Green Day song that I think of when I think of Dookie, just because I think I heard it the most on the radio. And really? Yeah. I know it's not some of the ones that were more mainstream, but at least, like, on the alternative station I was listening to, like, this was, like, kind of the cool song, because the other ones were a little bit poppier. Mm-hmm. And so I think, like, this one is, like, it's about masturbation. It's naughty. It's, you know. So I didn't listen to Green Day's albums at the time, um, or now. But I was introduced to their singles at this time by uh, both relatives of mine and also friends at school who would have their CDs, you know, and play them for me on Walkman. Um, Walksman. Walksman. Uh, Sorry, thank you for correcting me. Mm -hmm. Um, Longview specifically was introduced to me as like, oh, this is a song about masturbation. But I also feel like this was the time in my life when I was like, oh, that's cool to learn. Um, What's masturbation? <laughs> like, I, I feel like I know that I listened to Green Day at this time. And I know that it was introduced to me as a song that was like, oh, this this one's about masturbation. But I don't know if that actually had any resonance for me. I just thought it was kind of fun. The very crunchy guitars. And also, like, what stood out to me and always stands out to me is the bass. Mike Durnt is, I think, the secret weapon of Green Day and always has been. Those, like, bass parts really propel all of their songs, especially in this one. I believe he was on acid when he uh, came up with this bass riff, so (laughs) thank you, acid. Thanks, LSD! I don't know if this was the first Green Day song that I heard, but I feel like it was, and it really kind of encapsulates what I thought that their image was at the time and kind of remains to me, which is this sort of brattiness and and boredom and squalor that just, like, felt very, ugh, I guess. Jaded? But in a, yeah, but in a, like, it's fun to listen to, but when you actually, like, place yourself in the scene that they are, like, you're usually like, I don't want to be there, uh, because it's, like, gross. (laughs) Also had, like, this very, like, 90s anger at kind of nothing like very angry and very upset but kind of for no identifiable reason and uh so yeah the other singles that also had a lot of this in there that came out from dookie were basket case welcome to paradise when i come around and she and they pretty much all for the most part fall in the same you know kind of subject matter so i mean i'm a huge green day fan i have maybe seen them 20-something times, 25 times live. Um, I've seen them as the Foxborough hot tubs. Chris saw them with me. I did. In a dive bar in Long Beach. I've seen them in giant stadiums. Does it count that I saw American Idiot on Broadway four times? It does if they were in the the audience. They were once. (laughs) (laughs) You took a picture of me with Uh, Billy Armstrong. (laughs) I was was here for many of these events. Yes. uh, Chris has gone and saw Green Day with me a couple times. But I did not get into them until 2006, which is a year after American Idiot even came out. Even though I owned Nimrod, I liked like Hitchin' a Ride. I remember that was like my my Green Day song growing up. But I was never really like super into them until American Idiot, like a year after American Idiot. And I was like, oh, I'm the biggest Green Day fan in the world. Um, They're probably in my top three bands ever. Yeah, but I remember 
they were this bratty alternative, you know, older than me group for so long that I remember when Good Riddance Time of Your Life came out. I remember I was in the locker room, a different locker room. I was older <laughs> and, and it was playing. But were you still seeing Pocahontas? Well, maybe up until that point, I, I heard there was a record scratch. Somebody, <laughs> somebody said, this is Green Day. And I was like, this is Green Day singing this song. <laughs> like it was like, like nothing I'd ever heard of them before. It was this beautiful, you know, kind of ballad. It was something unpredictable. <laughs> but in the end, it was right. And Becky had the time of her life. So it. Yeah, and it became like everybody's prom song. So I became a, a Green Day fan later. Basically, what I'm saying is I've, I've listened to Dookie. Like, I've seen them live so many times. They still play a lot of these songs live. So these aren't like deep cuts for me. They're, you know, just part of the, the regular repertoire of what Green Day plays. And, you know, I think maybe a little bit of spoiler for the rest of this episode, with very few exceptions, I think these songs hold up the best. Even if other songs are good, they feel very trapped in the 90s. But I listen to Basket Case or even Longview, and it doesn't feel like a 90s song to me. It feels just like something that could have been released last year. There's just such strong hooks, and they're so good at making these hooks that are just so iconic. They just don't feel trapped in when they were made. Because I can hear a song they wrote five years ago, and I can hear something written in Dookie, and it kind of feels similar. And also, like, for me, I actually kind of emotionally connected to them at the time, and especially now, because I had a lot of suburban angst growing up in a suburb that was kind of separate from where all of my friend groups lived. There's a lot that's very alienating about growing up in any suburb, and I feel like the kind of angst that is all through all of their songs is very much that specific kind. And it's not related to any, like, one incident. It's more that, like, overall feeling of not being able to escape this place, wanting to escape this place, and kind of the setbacks of that. And I don't know if I appreciated it as much at the time. And I agree with you, Becky, the hooks of it. And just musically, they really do stand up very well. I totally knew you loved Green Day. I did not know it was so recent. Yeah, Yeah. I was actually surprised by that, too. Oh, yeah. I thought that this was, like, from your childhood like it never occurred to me that my green day history was like started before yours no my ex liked them and i think you know i liked the singles on the radio in 2005 for american idiot but then i actually listened to the full album and it's it's in my top three favorite albums of all time and it just kind of spiraled from there they put on amazing <laughs> live shows so i think it had something to do oh, with I that like would. i finally saw them live they put on like three hour concerts where i'm just like i'm tired green day <laughs> like, <laughs> you keep you you just keep going i'm so tired you guys take a break please <laughs> um yeah it is pretty recent Yeah, perhaps this is a little unfair, but in this episode, I could kind of not help comparing almost everyone to Nirvana in some way, just because that's such, like, the benchmark, kind of, for 1994 Mm -hmm. music. And, like, when we talked about Nirvana, like, there's something very kind of disturbing about his lyrics and his persona, and and it's a little bit kind of scary. I mean, maybe part of that is informed by the fact that we know that he killed himself, but just that he seems kind of very unhinged, and and there's, like, a, a, a dark side to him. And, like, by contrast like you're never afraid of green day like they're never they're singing about kind of depression and angst and stuff but it's all very like safe in a way it's still like you're still in a comfortable house you know um Mm -hmm. you know it's just like you're in the suburbs and you're kind of like bored you know but it's not life-threatening so Mm -hmm. um it's ennui yeah (laughs) yeah it's more existential Drink. Do I not like my dreams? 
Like, Basket Case is so good still. <laughs> and I really love the way he just starts, the way he says, duh. <laughs> like, just, like, I don't know if it's the yeah. way he says it or the way it's recorded. I just love just the way it, like, hits. I'm just like, yeah, I'm ready for this song. He has such a particular <laughs> accent. Yeah, his cadence of singing is Neurotic <laughs> to the band. Neurotic, yeah. Yeah. I have to admit that Green Day is one of my favorite bands to sing along to, because I can do the kind of, like, nasally, like, it, I'm sure it doesn't sound good, but, like, I feel like I can do a Billy Joel, Joel Armstrong, and, uh... Can you tell us about the time you went to a higher... <laughs> <laughs> yes. He's definitely influenced by, like, Britpop, the way he Most sings. Most definitely. Yeah. yeah, and, like, is kind of credited a little bit for, like, pop punk, too, which... Yeah. Um, you know, taking sort of punk, the edginess of punk, which is still kind of there in the feeling, but making it much more, like, kind of accessible and, and hooky. In this song, like, he said he wrote it about, like, a panic disorder he had when he was young, and so I think you definitely kind of feel that throughout a lot of this album uh, just like this kind of I don't know desperation where there's like nothing really wrong but it's like something more like psycho- psychological that's you know kind yeah. of yeah again it's kind of him. this like generalized anxiety that I connected to it because once you have that to a certain level it can become very powerful and become this kind of existential dread and it's interesting because not a lot of other rock music tries to talk about that at all a lot of other rock music is more about like your strength and your macho-ness and not about kind of vulnerability and fear. Yeah, or even if it, you know, touches on depression or something like, I think some of the songs that we'll talk about do, but it's in this very like sort of angry, violent way that still feels very masculine where this is... This is playful. Yeah, presenting themselves as like very helpless and kind of pathetic, like sitting around masturbating all day, you know, it's not like cool. It's... it's it's <laughs> They're yeah. like, look at what what a big loser I am. Yeah, basically. I was trying to say that without like just like going into back. Uh, but yeah, this was Grammy not nominated and also nominated for nine MTV Video Music Awards. It was a pretty well-known video. It's very iconic still. It's very like these, these neon colors. I feel like it's like maybe that and maybe American Idiot like is probably their most iconic video. Yeah, you can see on Billy Joe Armstrong's face, just like the facial expressions he's making are very, like his eyes are moving a lot and he looks very kind of like manic and he yeah. really sells like... It takes place in a psych ward, right? Yeah, like yeah. Every, yeah. Yeah, like a lot of bands would, you know, just try and like look cool and, and play there, but he's actually in character when he's singing the song, which I appreciate. One other thing that really struck me about this song in particular is when he goes to a whore, the mm-hmm. whore changes gender. Yeah. <laughs> um, he at first says that the whore is male and then like the second line the whore is female and that is something that I kind of just thought I was like mishearing the song before nope 
Yeah, <laughs> it really reminded me of a song from Nimrod called King for a Day, mm-hmm. which is about a kid who likes dressing up in women's clothes. And like Nimrod was my introduction to Green Day. Like I heard these songs on the radio, but that was the first album that I bought. And that's actually my personal favorite of theirs. I think that was the first full album of theirs that I heard like as an album. Mm-hmm. And it's really great. Yeah. I mean, I think it's equally yeah, it as good really as good. this or like I might have a slight preference for it, but I, I don't think that it's no, any I love yeah, yeah. less good than this. And I remember like hearing that song and just being so struck by it because like this was a very cool band at the time. And here they were like singing about someone who is like, you know, dressing in women's clothes and like not think- adhering to gender norms. And I was like so surprised that it felt like such a positive song and that they weren't like ragging on this kid. And I think he wrote about himself. Yeah, he has said that he is bisexual. Yeah, at least I've in the past. That. He's been with the same woman for like decades but yeah. yeah so he's got this gender fluidity and I like that and it's just kind of thrown in the songs and it's not a big deal the song's not about that right yeah yeah and it's very unconventional at the time this era in particular I mean the 90s was very like a lot of these other bands were very masculine in ways and, and very just like steeped in sort of some kind of like masculine energy and so for someone to like not care about that that really strikes me as as different and a reason to really like kind of root for Green Day in a way and just like I mean I know that there's a lot of gender fluidity and like early punk music going against like masculine norms but for someone that was a mainstream band that they became to do it like really Stands out for me. I mean, this whole genre feels like a response to hair metal bands that were all like chicks <laughs> and we're so manly and like we're singing about how much we're gonna score. Yeah. Like this entire genre feels like the younger people coming up were like, we don't really want that and we're rejecting it. And that it. specifically, like the whole hair metal movement was what everyone characterized Nirvana as rebelling against. It's ironic because in a lot of ways they were kind of picking up on things that came from that, like in terms of super super distorted loud guitars, like pop song structure, a lot of that stuff really did carry through. But the kind of idea of alternative as like a cultural movement was really about that and about rebelling against that. Yeah, so to touch on Welcome to Paradise, just because I never read about what the song was about, they wrote it about this moment when they were living with a bunch of other artists in a house in Oakland that like none of them were paying rent and it was just basically like they were squatting there. (laughs) Hearing the lyrics of that song this time, you know, it really... Because a lot of times you can't can't always understand what the lyrics are, uh, especially in these early Green Day songs. But I'm out now, now. The song is like kind of addressed to his mom, and it's like at first he's like, "Oh my god, like why did I leave my mom's house? Like why am I living in this place?" And then it kind of goes from that into like feeling secure, even though he's still living in a really shitty place. But I just kind of appreciated like that it was very juvenile. It's about like the first time that you leave home and and being out on your own. And what do you guys think about when I come around? Because that is something that kind of has become a staple of Green Day, which is the pretty song. Because <laughs> they're mostly known for their, like, kind of punky aesthetic. But then they often have, like, one song that's kind of very mainstream and pretty. Like Good so, Riddance. Good Riddance, um, When September Comes. Like, there's a lot of radio-friendly kind of... They want it to end, not come, Chris. <laughs> Um, I know what you're talking about. I actually, I made a Spotify playlist of all these songs. So check that out. We'll have that on social. Um, And I was thinking about what should open this giant 50 song playlist. (laughs) And I I opened it with When I Come Around. And the second I did that, I was like, nope, that's perfect. I was playing it for my husband. And I was like, when you think of 1994 or around that era for alternative music, what do you think of? And he's like, When I Come Around, like the opening riff feels like that era. 
their most popular song up until Boulevard of Broken Dreams oh, which wow. came out in 2004 wow interesting and I think this is the one song that feels I don't know if it's dated but it just it feels so enmeshed in 1994 that it feels a little bit cheesy like when you hear it now just because it was such a hit and so of the time but it's still a pretty great song mm-hmm I didn't know when to drop this, but I feel like so much of what we consider alternative music and culturally what came about as and like got defined as alternative was really just ripping off David Bowie. Not just kind of specific things he did in terms of like when he wrote songs that were more poppy or songs that were more electronic or songs that were more like rock music, but in so many ways, like popular culture kind of reflected the changes that David Bowie went through throughout his career. Oh no, oh no, (laughs) I feared doing that and I I walked right into it. But it's interesting because I mean, like, we'll talk about Nirvana, but they, they covered. Bowie Mm -hmm. on their Unplugged album, but so much of the kind of lyrical vulnerability and more emotional and more countercultural elements that we talk about, even in Green Day's music, and along with that, the kind of like rocking guitars, I think we're really influenced by David Bowie's music at all of those stages. Time jiving us that we were voodoo. The kids were just crass. He was the nest with God given ass. He took it all too far. But boy, could he play guitar? Well, yeah, and to talk about someone who is not adhering to gender norms, David Bowie was definitely that. And then I feel like culture kind of, when he was popular, like that was sort of okay. In the 70s. Yeah, there became like a sort of a moment when that was more like frowned upon, not him specifically, but just like macho culture of the 80s. And so by the time like 90s bands were kind of then emulating David Bowie again, it felt revolutionary, even Mm -hmm. though he had sort of already done it like 20 years earlier. Yeah. So February also saw the debut of Cake with the single Rock and Roll Lifestyle and a few others. They hit it bigger later, but it was interesting. Was uh, it with I Will Survive cover? That and... Going the Distance. Yeah. They're a very distinct band. Like, you never <laughs> are, like, listening to Cake and not knowing who it is. <laughs> oh, cake. yeah. You're not going to mistake them for something so, else. <laughs> I really didn't expect to get much out of this podcast, but I think that I found a few new faves. And I only really knew Cake by those two songs, Going the Distance and, and I Will Survive cover. But I think I like them. And we o- I only listened to, like, one or two, but I, I think I will seek out Cake. Yeah, this um, was a welcome addition to the rotation, too. I did not know this song either. I definitely knew Cake from like several singles later, but um, yeah, to hear them and they were they were definitely themselves all the way back in 1994. So. Yeah, you, d- you don't. 
they, they don't sing, <laughs> but they have such a distinct style. Yeah, it's like beat poetry or something. Yeah. yeah, and it's very musically performed. Well, and I had a particular friend of mine in high school really loved Cake, but he didn't really listen to this era. So I hadn't really heard this single, at least not in any listening to pop radio. But I really loved this song. I thought it was really good and has the same kind of upbeat, poppy in the ABBA sense of pop music, upbeat instrumentation, but lyrically is just so snarky and wisecracking. Like, I I really liked it. I thought it was a really fun song. Yeah, I don't know the lead singer's name, but the way that he sings is so distinct and so, like, like can you believe you're listening to a song? Like, it's just, it, it, it's kind of like the Seinfeld equivalent, like, if Seinfeld did a single or something. What's the deal with this alternative? <laughs> so I, I really enjoyed this one, too. Now tickets to concerts and drinking at clubs, sometimes for music that you haven't even heard of. And how much did you pay for your rock and roll t-shirt that proves you were there, that you heard of them first? Now, how do you afford your rock and roll lifestyle? How do you afford your rock and roll lifestyle? How do you afford your rock and roll lifestyle? February also saw the release of the Reality Bites soundtrack, which was a big oh, I had that one. compilation oh of alternative. Lisa Loeb broke out big from there. We will not go into Lisa Loeb you right now. You say. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. I don't say. I'd like to say that I put this on the Spotify playlist. I felt like it was necessary. It was a huge hit. It was a woman. <laughs> and I know every lyric still. I haven't listened to it in years. And, yeah, and I, I know every lyric still. I listened, yeah, I, I never liked it, and I still don't. You're not a girl. Every girl <laughs> that is roughly my age knows all the lyrics to Part of Your World from The Little Mermaid <laughs> and Stay by Lisa Loeb. Hey, a very wide swath of gay boys also <laughs> okay. know every word. But I'm just saying, if you have a vagina and you're in your mid-30s, you know all the lyrics to Part of Your World and Stay. <laughs> Um, and probably shoot by <laughs> salt and pepper. I'll yeah. say that part of your world holds up. Not so sure about Lisa Loeb. Moving on. <laughs> Back. Back, everybody. Back, everyone. His album Mellow Gold came out on March 1st, so we are now in the third month of the year. <laughs> He's from Los Angeles. Really the only single from this album that I knew well was Loser, because it is a huge single. It is... Oh, yeah. The second you hear that opening riff, yeah. like, yeah, you know it.
I am literally never not pleased when that song comes on. Like, it can come on, you know, when I'm driving, in a bar. Like, it does not matter. It <laughs> in could, a car? <laughs> it could come on right after it just already came on. And I'm still happy to hear it. Like, it's just one of those songs that I have never been tired of. And I think on any list of, like, the best songs of all time, I would probably have to put it on there. Just because it's such a great song. And so, I mean, the lyrics... Make no sense, but they're so... Unique. Yeah, like... Yeah. And it's just, like you were saying, like, you hear the very, like, opening second, and anyone could tell you what song that is. Mm-hmm. Me and you, Chris, saw Beck at the Hollywood Bowl years ago, and he opened with Loser, and everyone went crazy. <laughs> and then I was like, whoa, you're opening with Loser? And then we left. <laughs> yeah. And then the rest was... It was one of his sad divorce albums, I think, but he opened with Loser. And I was like, See, wow, strong start. That's the funny part is I love his sad divorced albums. <laughs> like, no, he's a, he's a fantastic musician. Like, which is so hilarious that like when this was his opening single and was such a flash in the pan at the time, like the idea that 25 years later he would still be seen as a very relevant singer-songwriter. That's and great. winning so many Grammys. Like, Constant he, Grammys. I think he has something like seven Seventeen or really? something like wow. it's a crazy number, and he's nominated like every time he puts out an album. And deservedly, like yeah. I, I love his music. I really now. liked. Um, um, I was more into Odelay. I remember being in art class in fourth grade. And one of my friends was telling me about Beck and about the song Loser. And then very soon after that, I heard it on the radio. And I had no context for this kind of music at all. And it was so unlike Nirvana as well. Hmm. It's all acoustic, has like electronic weird percussion elements. And again, like the lyrics are not like specifically emotive, but they're evocative. Oh, in the time of chimpanzee, were you not a monkey? <laughs> um, I don't know. I have to check my records from back at this time. <laughs> um, a few years later, in 1996, his album Odelay came out. The cover that has a very fuzzy dog jumping a hurdle. <laughs> yeah, if you can tell what that the, is. The dog's yeah. like a mop. And the songs from that were a lot more recognizable to me because I was, by that point, like listening to the alternative stations on the radio. But yeah, I, I think Loser still completely holds up as a song and is just a total earworm, especially that guitar lick. Yeah, so Beck was actually a folk musician when he started off. And one of the reasons his lyrics are so weird is that, like, people used to talk through his sets because he wasn't, you know, famous at the time. And so he would just make up these, like, crazy <laughs> things just to see if anyone was paying attention. And folk music, like, didn't really get him very far. And that's why he's basically doing folk music with these, like, kind of insane, like, hip-hop beats behind them. Yeah, I mean, I think Beck is very uh, distinct in this era. Like, he really doesn't sound like anyone. This song doesn't sound like anything else. Also, interestingly, like uh, the chorus, the I'm a loser baby was not originally part of the song until he had done like the rapping and the rest of it. And when it was played back to him, he was like, I'm a loser. <laughs> like, like, why am I rapping? And basically, that's where that came from. Huh. And the song was actually recorded a couple years before and only got popular in 1994 when it was kind of released as a single and then included later on this The Mellow Gold album. I really liked Beck's Midnight Vultures. I think a theme of this episode is going to be that I got into the artists like right after uh, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. the albums that are kind Same of like their iconic ones because Odelay is definitely another one that was his iconic one and Midnight Vultures is not so much but I have all this affinity for like the next albums for a lot of these 
these artists, like Green Day's Nimrod, mm-hmm. Midnight Vultures. Midnight Vultures, that's an amazing album. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. People romanticize, like, sort of the DPU album or the Breakout album, which a lot of the ones we're talking about today are. I think it's just because it's, like, whatever you first hear. Like, they have the same sound. And so I just happened to, like, hear the, like, not iconic albums. But Loser was definitely, like, a song that I heard all the time and still hear all the time and love. (laughs) (laughs) So March 8th uh, saw the release of two major albums, both Soundgarden's Super Unknown and Nine Inch Nails' The Downward Spiral. So we will start with Nine Inch Nails with the little ditty uh, closer. (laughs) (laughs) I broke apart my insides. This and uh, Basket Case and a few others we're going to talk about, their videos are what I can't separate from the song. I just see images from their music videos. That's disturbing in this case. Yes, very. And we we just, before this recording, rewatched Closer, and it is real creepy still. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real creepy music yeah, video. Yeah, I feel like I'm watching a snuff video. It's um, Mark Romanek directed it, and it is, it just perfectly just captures that Nine Inch Nails, like, what you're supposed to feel, like, dirty and gross, and, like, you're not supposed to see what you're seeing, feeling. I feel like Closer could have been released yesterday like it doesn't yeah. it does it doesn't feel like 1994 to me at all no musically no. at all no i mean this song was inescapable on the radio in new orleans because trent Reznor very famously moved there as soon as his career blew up which would have been i think around this time or just shortly thereafter and i think this song is just really brilliantly crafted dark industrial pop Um, And again, uh, I mean, he later collaborated with David Bowie, but Trent Reznor especially took so much influence musically from Bowie, especially the kind of more industrial, like, Berlin stuff. Um, And so this was definitely a song that I heard at the time, but I would never be caught playing it at home, (laughs) because I would not want my mom to ask about the lyrics. (laughs) Um, But yeah, this was like, this song was absolutely huge, like, even as a kid when it was coming out. And it had a naughty word in it. It had such a naughty word in it and concept. And it had, like, a censored video, so that was, like, a whole thing on MTV. I mean, there's a lot of disturbing stuff that's still in the video. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I heard this song probably around this time. Like, I think it broke through to pop culture in general enough. Like, even if it wasn't the song itself, just sort of that phrase, I want to fuck you like an animal. Like, I think everyone kind of knew that there was a song that said that I feel like it was, like, a meme kind of joke before the concept of memes happened. Yeah, because I remember... 
remember, I don't know when it was, but I think like being in the car with my mom and like hearing this come on, it was like, well, what are you going to do? Like, like everyone already knows the song exists. Like it for some reason didn't have that sort of embarrassing sense that it would if it was like there were other CDs that I had that had like bad lyrics. And if they came on, like when my parents were listening, I'd be like, whoops. But for some reason, this was just like, uh, eh, it's Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> This is very atypical of Nine Inch Nails. In at least it's not like their other songs don't sound like this. I think they are a very experimental band. So to say it's atypical is kind of a weird thing to say because they do a lot of things that are atypical. But yeah, like I, li- I listened to some of the rest of this album and it's very different. And, mm. you know, which I was expecting because I know that they're an industri- industrial band. They were never my favorite. But I think this song is like up there with like Loser as like one of the greats. That I was we were talking about Loser, how the first few notes you're like that's loser and this is like the drum beat like is it even drums it's just like can you play that the very opening i mean it's kind of all synthesizer but in like, one way or another like synth percussion you're like that's closer yeah. which is weird because it's just like it's kind it's of like the same machine. beat that it's like everything machine. else has like yeah like a lot of uh like techno songs start like that but for some reason this one i believe it's a sample of an icky iggy pop song oh really oh cl- tub th- um night clubbing yes yes it's from train spotting soundtrack uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um of course i would know that um yeah i think it's it's just so iconic it's it's such a great song. Like this episode I think is filled with actually really great songs, but Absolutely. I think I think Closer stands out as like a clear winner. It wins. Well, no, <laughs> it I won. guess the rest everyone else is going home. <laughs> there Sorry, are silver everyone. medals. <laughs> Congratulations to the other nominees. <laughs> I'm not even a big Nine Inch Nails fan, but this song is undeniable. Yeah. Soundgarden is another Seattle band. It's led by Chris Cornell. The band is named after a wind channeling pipe sculpture in Seattle. <laughs> This is probably the band I most mistook for Nirvana (laughs) when I was listening to the radio. Like, for some reason, that station that I won't name again didn't usually do the, and that was Nirvana, you know, Mm -hmm. thing. It was just like they played the songs. And so it was kind of up to you to guess. Or, I mean, if you were a real music fan, you would know who sang Black Hole Sun. I didn't. I really probably wasn't sure until we started doing this uh, episode, to be honest. Coming from Seattle, Black Hole Sun is Seattle. (laughs) Like, it is... It should be the anthem. You know, it talks about, like, wanting the sun to come and (laughs) wash away the rain. And (laughs) just that sound, that very depressing, like... I don't particularly like this song. And I heard it so many times. An oppressive number of times. But it is very much part of my soul. (laughs) That's so funny. Hang my head Drown my fear Till you all just disappear Black Hole Sun was one of the first really heavy guitar rock songs I ever got into. It does so many things musically that appealed to the music nerd in me, like even when I was young and only studying classical music. It has really interesting guitar effects. It has a melodically jarring like instrumental break in the middle of the song that repeats a bunch of times with some really amazing soloing before it 
finally kind of resolves. And this was also the first time I heard Chris Cornell's voice, which was really iconic in and of itself. But again, I think really defines 90s rock, but also in the sense of being incredibly emotionally expressive. It was just super, super intense. And also, uh, the other huge thing about this was Black Hole Sun was one of the first really insane music videos that really caught my eye when I would be watching like VH1 or MTV. It's kind of almost like this David Lynch movie. Oh, it's so creepy With still. these computer-enhanced people. And of course, it's like very rudimentary video effects, but their faces are kind of stretching out as these very like apocalyptic moments unfold. That makes it creepier. It <laughs> makes it so much creepier. Yeah. And and again, Chris, it's I think you're right, like in highlighting the very dark tone of the guitars and the, and the way that the guitars are arranged. And it was very dark music. And so I very intuitively understood it as kind of the alternative form of music and i think it really fits in that sense i can't separate this song from the music video like when i hear it and i think it's a good song it has like this like chaotic like build and i like it but i just see those people with those eyes and their creepy smiles i had not seen the music video which is weird (laughs) i feel like the video goes very well with the song and that they're very different in ways because I hear the song and I feel so like blah, like, and the video is not that. Yeah, the the, video is very colorful and vibrant. Yeah, yeah. So I think that they're interesting complements to one another. Somehow I had never seen it. um, I don't know how you missed it. it. Basically, is just Bird Box. (laughs) 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 You're not wrong. This uh, won the best hard rock performance Grammy, so it was acclaimed at the time. Another Soundgarden song, Spoon Man, won the Best Metal Performance Grammy. Interesting. And that was another song that I heard um, on the radio and never had any idea who it was. And doing this, like, really helped me, like, solidify, like, oh, this is Soundgarden versus... Nirvana. Yeah, like, I now know, like, what songs are Nirvana, but there are a few that I would still, like, not know. Is this Alice in Chains or Soundgarden or other bands that I'd never really got into. I mean, I know that Soundgarden's in Black Hole Sun, but there are a lot of songs that are like Stone Temple Pilots or Pearl Jam or Alice in Chains or or Soundgarden. Um, I don't know who they are and I have, you know, I like I like bands that kind of sound similar, but but I'm a fan of them, so I know what the differences are. So I'm sure that people that like these bands know what the differences are. But to me, like I'm still like I have to check and be like, oh, this is Pearl Jam. Yeah, when I read the title Spoon Man before listening to the song, I was like, I have no idea what that is. Like, <laughs> you know, like and I almost like didn't listen to it or include it on this because I was like, I've never heard that song. And then you play it and oh, you know yeah. exactly what it is. Oh yeah. I have to say that listening to all these songs, the thing that kept going in my mind was the Brady Bunch movie. (laughs) (laughs) It just felt like all these songs could have been in the Brady Bunch movie soundtrack. (laughs) 
That's true. That movie has a grunge soundtrack. That's like true. It, it was released in 1995, so it was like kind of at the tail end of it's grunge. True, yeah. And possibly killed grunge itself. <laughs> uh, but it's not like famous bands, really. It's all these sort of like LA, like more or less one hit wonders. Or And it's a very weird soundtrack because it's like music that sounds like this, but that just you never heard it anywhere else. <laughs> Just in the Brady Bunch movie. And yet it's very, very grungy. Yeah, but that's what I kept thinking of, that I was listening to the soundtracks of Brady Bunch movie. I was totally unfamiliar with Spoon Man, by the way. Like, I I don't think I'd ever heard it before. I didn't really listen to Soundgarden songs as albums. I listened, I, like, got their number ones or, like, their big hits album, which was obviously padded out with a lot of other things, too. But I'm guessing it's a song about drug abuse, like heroin abuse. No, actually. It's not? It is about a... soup! No. (laughs) Stop guessing. Is this not a song about the perspective of the soup Nazi? It is a song about a street performer, an actual one who used to like perform with spoons, and he actually like performs in the song. Oh, he's the spoonman. Yes. The titular spoonsman. The titular spoonsman. (laughs) I like my interpretation more. (laughs) I prefer Becky's as well. Yep, uh, that was definitely on the radio (laughs) on 1077. (laughs) The end. what are you up to, like, $100 now? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, even, I think they played a lot of, like, non-single tracks. So, like, probably I've actually heard, like, most of Soundgarden's entire catalog, and I just mm-hmm. don't know it. But as soon as I hear it, it's like, yep, we're moving into April. <laughs> God, God, this year never ended. <laughs> it's still 1994, <laughs> listeners. Uh, April saw the release of The Offspring's Smash, which was their third studio album, but the one that really um, broke out and made them a mainstream act. The Offspring are from Garden Grove, California. They're led by Dexter Holland, who has a Master of Science in Molecular Biology. I can't even say Molecular (laughs) Biology. And uh, received a PhD in the same in 2017. Uh, He studies the genetic material of HIV, is a licensed pilot, and has his own brand of hot sauce. (laughs) So a lot of um, the people that we're talking about today are dead. (laughs) So I just thought it was interesting that he had a very different trajectory in his teaching and into science. Those were all very surprising offspring facts. He is also a Trojan, like the three of us. Mm -hmm. He went to USC, and I remember um, a story (laughs) about how he was starting his band um, while he was there and he asked a teacher, a professor for advice. Like, my, my band is taking off, but, like, should I go get this? Like, should I go to grad school or something? And they're like, don't go with your band. Like, don't do that. It's going to be, you know, like a risk and it's not going to pay off. And then he basically did not take that advice. And yeah. he's uh, the offspring. And now USC marching band plays The Kids Aren't Alright, like, they all do. the time. And I think that's, that's true. such a good marching oh, band hilarious. song. It is. Really like, I have is. desperately searched for, like, a like download of that song and have never been able to find what? it. Really? Yeah. I'm surprised. Yeah. Because they have, like, the USC marching they band have has soundtracks. tracks available, but maybe, I've never found that one. Maybe they can't, like, legally they Did can't? they not get the royalties? Come yeah. on, Dexter. Come on, Dexter. But, but they love, I mean, the USC is all about the offspring, and they play that everywhere. They play that at our graduation. Oh, <laughs> which is a weird song to when you're graduating. Yeah. I really liked Americana, yeah. which was a few albums after yeah. their debut, and that's the album that I like of The Offspring. It has Fly for a White Guy on it. The kids Why aren't all right. Yeah. yeah. I don't know Ugh. when that came out, but I was slightly older, so I was more into alternative music. 
Yeah, it was like um, 98 or 99, I think. I had that album, too. Continuing the tradition of me mm-hmm. having the album that we're not talking about yeah. uh, today. Um, <laughs> but this is, again, one of, the ban- one of the many bands where you gave the list of songs, and I was like, there's nothing for me here outside Green Day. I don't know anything. And then I listened to five seconds of the song. And oh, I'm yeah. like, oh, I know this song. Everyone mm-hmm. knows this song. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, the debut single was Come Out and Play, uh, which is also, I think, probably one of the ones that you're like... Well, that one I knew I knew, yeah. yeah. Immediate. Separated. So I went for years believing that that was the song that played in Pulp Fiction when Uma Thurman and John Travolta were dancing. What? <laughs> yes. Wait, I the don't... surf guitar. Yeah, when, you know, she's doing the V hands. Why? I don't know. I think, like, possibly I saw, like, a clip of it with that over it. But but they're not even playing Miserloo. That's during the trailer. They're playing uh, Goes to Show You Never Can Tell. I, I can't in explain the trailer, why. In the it trailer, it's Miserloo. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like maybe and something at like the MTV guitar. Movie Awards and they were like playing this song okay. over that. But for some reason, it sounds like a song that like Tarantino would kind of use. And I don't I don't think I really like had a lot of context for the Oscar. Oh, the don't, 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 and it's a very similar thing. I totally see how you could mistake them. Yeah, so I heard this song a lot also on the radio. Um, always really liked this song. Uh, Offspring's pretty recognizable. Like, you can tell who they are by Dexter Holland's voice. But I had never listened to the lyrics besides, like, keep them separated. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that means. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. What? No, I haven't. I think the Offspring are probably the least defensible band that I was ever momentarily Wait, into. Tell, tell me what these lyrics are, because I'm not paying attention. So the song is about gang violence and basically, like, kids bringing guns to school. So the opening of the song is, like, the latest fashion, like, a spreading disease. The kids are strapping on their way to the classroom, getting weapons with the greatest of ease. And then, you know, it goes on to talk about, like, gang colors. And basically the chorus is like, hey, you talking back to me? You know, basically, like, sort of this machismo and gang fighting. Uh, the song was actually inspired by vials of bacteria. Because Dexter Holland was a scientist. He was in a science lab, and he realized that he, he had to, like, keep two vials of bacteria apart from each other, or they would, like, mm-hmm. not cool. But basically, like, that using that as a metaphor for, you know, like, gangs. Like, you you can't you know, mixed gangs or you're going to have violence. Mm -hmm. So I had this image of The Offspring based mainly on Americana and that CD and that they were the more uh, punky of like anyone really on this album, especially like I listened to the rest of the album and it's even more punk influence than the singles. And 
really had a conception of them as being kind of, uh, not dumb, but just kind of like, kind of grungy and maybe like... Lowbrow? Yeah. Yeah. And so to learn, A, that like he is a very brilliant man and (laughs) that like this song had so much social commentary in it was like very surprising to me. It was definitely the biggest revelation I had listening to any of these songs because I know so much of it so well. And then this one really like took on a whole new sort of dimension to the band that I had not uh, considered before. This was the first time I listened, apparently not the lyrics for this song, but like I listened to the lyrics for self-esteem and for bad habit, which is about road rage. I just, I thought they were really interesting lyrics and I felt like they really were trying to say something with at least these songs that I listened to. And he's just very interesting to listen to. I don't think he's a great singer, but there's something about his performance and his voice that's just so distinct that I like listening to him. Yeah, Bad Habit is the other song that really, even I think more so than Come Out and Play, like has a lot of violence to it and basically Mm -hmm. that it's taking on the persona of someone who calls like basically shooting people a bad habit or at least threatening them with guns. Mm-hmm. They actually got a lot of hate mail from parents for that song because people kind of um, perceived it as you know advocating for violence when they thought that they were kind of clearly like putting on a character and being yeah. you know. I didn't, did you get that? Like I didn't get that they were advocating any of this. It Not felt like all, they were no. knowingly trying to make a commentary on these things. So, at the summer camp that was not at my school, this was the summer camp that I, like, traveled within Louisiana Mm -hmm. to attend, our RA, who was, like, the RA on our floor of the dorm rooms, put on the Offsprings album, Smash, this album, which had all these huge hits on it, but it was the song Bad Habits, specifically, that completely stood out to me in a way that no other songs or musicians did at the time because of that raw anger and also the use of so many cuss words all in a row. <laughs> Which I'm sure it was very fun at live concerts. Oh, yeah. This <laughs> and how old were you when they were playing this for you? <laughs> well, so this would have been like maybe a year or so after the album had come out, probably 95 or 96, summer 95. But I really connected with that song Um, in particular, in a way that I think really did, like, drive me toward angrier music like the Smashing Pumpkins and stuff like that, uh, that I wouldn't have really saw the appeal in before then. Times are rude, such attitudes, but when I show my peace, complaints leave some things odd. Feel like I'm God, you stupid, dumb shit, goddamn motherfucker! But also, like, in retrospect, so many of the Offspring's lyrics are, I think, the whinier side of suburban angst and existential dread, more in the kind of alt-right, awkward white boy who can't get laid kind of way. I think it became more pronounced later on. I think these songs, like, have their catchy moments, but I do think these are kind of, and I think the Offspring in general, are very much more stuck in the 90s than something like Green Day. Huh, I kind of disagree. I was surprised, like I said, about the substance that these lyrics had. To me, they seemed the most spiritually similar to Nirvana in that they, you know, had this undertone of violence and social commentary and that, like, Kurt Cobain often sings songs where he is speaking as the violent person and yet you never feel that he is kind of advocating for violence. Like, it feels more like a critique, um, but he's just taking on that character. And I, I, to me, it was, like, pretty clear that that's what they were doing here. And this is one of the bands 
students that I ended up coming out of this like having much more respect for than I had mm. before. They had the song Pretty Fly for a White Guy, but I think that also is a very like kind of sarcastic take on that where they're, you know, like basically making fun of white guys who can't get laid versus like singing like that that's really them. I don't know. I I do still kind of see their music as more middle brow than not. I don't see where all that education went in the lyric writing process. I probably want to seek out more offspring, honestly, after this, because I know Americana very well. But I, I was really intrigued by what I listened to, the tracks that we listened to for this, that I kind of want to check out their other stuff. So I, I was surprised yeah. how, how much I liked it, actually. Yeah, self, Self-Esteem is another really great track, and maybe their most iconic, the video especially. Yeah. And that one, you know, has no violence to it, but is about, like, a guy who's taken advantage of by his girlfriend and kind of can't speak up to her, you know, and just kind of gives in to her. I remember hearing that, you know, kind of, and it's just, it tells a story, like, very vividly. It's easy to, like, not hear the story in a lot of songs, and for some reason that one, it just, like, it feels really clear what that's about. He doesn't mumble, (laughs) so you can understand what he's saying. (laughs) Elocution was very yes. important in the alternative. I mean, as much as I love Billy Joe Armstrong, he mumbles. <laughs> Yo, yeah. <laughs> so also in April uh, was Kurt Cobain's suicide on April 5th, or at least he was found on April 5th. Um, on April 12th, uh, Holes Live Through This was released. Hmm. Wow. So that was uh, quite some timing. Um, obviously, it was recorded uh, long before that happened but yeah because this was a very like breakout album and possibly in part because she was getting you know some publicity from this as well but for that to be your breakout moment um, even that title is just horrifying in retrospect mm. yes and Courtney Love is the uh, front woman of Hole one of the weird things that happened with this album is that a lot of crazy people like insisted that Kurt Cobain had written like a lot of the songs <laughs> just because they I guess couldn't believe that Hmm. Courtney Love had, you know, I mean, people have had kind of a weird perception of Courtney Love and maybe some of it is earned, but like the fact that people were so like grieving for him that they needed to kind of create this conspiracy theory that she was like pretending that that she had written this album when he had actually done so, which is absolutely not true. Like everyone involved in it, you know, is on the record about the fact that he only ever like really like worked on like one song that they did and is credited for that so for that to come out like at this time you know when you're grieving and Mm -hmm. just like did it do well (laughs) it did pretty well i think it's it's one of the albums that is appreciated more so um the the longer that goes on like it's now kind of looked back on as like a real classic and obviously it's very different from a lot of these albums because it's uh performed and written by a female and one of the big singles uh was doll parts that one is about kurt cobain and i think you 
can kind of tell that this is like a female oriented album like it's just it feels like a woman's kind of perspective even though the music is very aggressive and alternative and not what we normally associate with like female artists I am doll parts bed skin doll heart it's it's a it's an interesting album i personally like got into hole a little bit more when they were when they had become a little bit more like radio friendly um in their next album celebrity skin yeah which was mostly written by billy corgan okay well (laughs) (laughs) i mean look i fully agree with you that she became a hate object for the kind of like reflexive misogyny in popular culture and especially in in rock culture like we were talking about with the machismo of like hair metal and all that stuff earlier i think there was a lot of that backlash element to courtney love's whole existence um but also i think she was an uneven songwriter at best like i did not think doll parts was a good song i thought like one of the other songs on our list by veruca salt like there was a good a decent musical idea in it that got beaten to death that was just really just repeated past the point of having anything exciting or new to it um and like you chris with our trend of getting into these acts when they like had their follow-up album when they found collaborators who brought out their best instincts i think courtney love has written some really fantastic pop songs i just didn't find these to be quite at that level yeah, I I listened through to some of this album and also didn't really get into it. Like, I kind of more appreciated it than I actually liked listening to it. Courtney Love herself kind of said that it's ridiculous to say that Kurt Cobain had written the album because she herself thought that she was an inferior songwriter and admitted that. So that was interesting. It fits the vibe of this time when I was listening to Doll Parts. Yeah. It's not like that I loved it, but I was like, this sounds exactly... Mm-hmm. Like, if I was making a movie <laughs> made in 1994, <laughs> this would definitely be in the background of a scene. Speaking of that, uh, <laughs> Diablo Cody is a big whole fan. Uh, Jennifer's Body is a song from uh, oh. Live Through This. Oh. And Juno, I think, has a song also from this. So, hmm. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yep. fair. <laughs> I do have to say, I saw Courtney Love at, like, K-Rock's Weenie Roast. Five years ago, I honestly don't care either way about Courtney Love. I don't like her in some respects. I like her in other respects. I kind of come out even, but I had fun watching her play guitar and sing, and it was a fun uh, part of the festival. I was very surprised. And then uh, there was also uh, Throwing Copper, the album from Live uh, that came out at the end of April as well. Um, The two major singles that I remember from this one are I Alone and Lightning Crashes. I alone. 
<laughs> you okay? I listened to all these songs at least three times, if not more, and I still don't know what song that is. But the second you play it, you I'm will. Gonna, I'm going to know what it is. You will. You really. Will. I have that same problem with live. I have actually seen live, <laughs> live uh, multiple times. Because, I know who it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I have a friend who really likes live, and so I've gone in support. And yet, like I saw lightning crashes. So I was like, I know, I know it, but I don't know what it is. But here it is. <laughs> You could tell me this was Stone Temple Pilots, and I'd be like, okay. Or you could be like, just kidding, it's Pearl Jam. And I'd be like, all right. Wait, do you not remember the music video for this? No, I don't know it. There's like, it's like a very like pastor. It looks like it's like oil paintings, but filmed. No. And there's like this like woman giving birth. No, I don't know it. And, and the lead singer of the band live, like singing. Play I Alone. That's the one I'm, I know I know it, but I don't remember. Greatest of teachers won't hesitate I alone. That's what they're saying. You you can say the words. They're words. He doesn't sing them, but they're words. They feel more toward mainstream rock than alternative in a way. For some reason, I don't really know. Like, live just didn't kind of stick as part of this alternative movement. Like, they were obviously at the same time part of it. Like, there's nothing that really differentiates uh, Lightning Crashes from a a lot of these other songs. And yet, they just kind of are there. And when I saw these other names, I was like, wow. And then live, I was like, oh, okay. Like, Yeah, and in retrospect, they're very Pearl Jam-ish. Even though I was very specifically never into Pearl Jam. And I did kind of like live and had friends, especially later in high school, who really liked live and loved this album. Lightning Crashes, I definitely remember the music video for this, like on VH1 and stuff. And like on pop-up video, this was all over the place. Um, but yeah, I mean, and and definitely in retrospect, they're relatively generic, really. I like the lead singer's <laughs> voice. Yeah, he has a very like intense and emotive voice. Yeah, I feel like I should like it more. Like it should be <laughs> more important. Like all of yeah. these things, and yet, no. <laughs> so, moving on. Uh, the next big release was Weezer's uh, self-titled... Uh, debut album also Also known as the blue Blue album Album. yes because they have a color thing going on released may 10th they got their big break thanks to a certain seattle radio station (laughs) that was the first to play which one chris uh it was uh 107.7 the end i believe was the name of it uh that's 200 (laughs) dollars they were the first to play the sweater song or any weezer song like commercially so uh you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) on seattle's behalf And uh, Undone, the sweater song, was the first single. Oh no, it go, it 
Uh, Undone was the first song uh, Rivers Como ever wrote. Hmm. I am curious what your perception of Weezer overall is. I got nothing against Weezer. They wrote some good songs. I once dated a guy who was obsessed with them, so I don't listen to them. (laughs) (laughs) I had no such ex-experiences. My love affair with Weezer began at the end of high school and lasted into college and then ended about my junior year of college. And I revisit (laughs) some of their songs, but do not hold them in nearly the same esteem that I used to. Say It Ain't So was one of the first songs that I learned to play on electric guitar. So if you ask the people who lived on my dorm at USC freshman year, uh, <laughs> I have never loved a song more I really than like, this Weezer jam. I really like that song because a acapella group at USC did it. Oh, and I didn't Lord. even know it was a Weezer song. I just liked that song. That song was the jam at USC. (laughs) Apparently so. I think it was reverse osmosis at USC. Oh, I'm sure it was. Yeah. um, Um, I really liked the Blue album, and I liked Pinkerton, the album that came after this. I mean, in retrospect, I still think the the songs on this album are very catchy, but lyrically, they're relatively very shallow. Yeah, like, my note on this was that they're kind of, like, dorky, and, mm-hmm. like, their music... Is- well, that was the point. Yeah, like, that's <laughs> that's partially, like, the point. And yet, I also think they're slightly dorkier than they intend to be. I mean, they became very mainstream uh, a couple of albums later, uh, the Green Album and then on. And even though I like, you know, like, songs like Hashpipe, like, they're catchy, at least. And um, now they're covering Toto's Africa. <laughs> yeah, they just came out with uh, the Teal album. Which is mostly... Are all their albums colors? They're all covers. Most of them. Yeah. I know they had Hurley, though. Yeah, they had... And Pinkerton. They had, oh, they've had, right. like, probably yeah. half of them are colors. Uh, the Teal album is all covers. Mostly of 80s songs, but then also, for some reason, no scrubs. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that so, seems fun, though. And, yeah. No. No. I, I, I have listened to that album because I was just like, what the fuck is this? Uh, yeah, I mean, and again, that's, like, sort of knowingly dorky. And yet also kind of also dorky. They named their album Hurley, and the cover was George Garcia from Lost. <laughs> like, Isn't his space. name Jorge? Jorge, right, sorry. <laughs> the, George. The point stands. <laughs> I'm just trying to, like, grasp the self-knowing dorkiness that's been baked in. I mean, their Buddy Holly music video is, like, Happy Days. That's not cool. Fonzie's like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like sort of ironic and hipster-ish, but it's... Yeah, they are, for sure. And and maybe they were, like, hipster before hipster was a thing, kind of. I, th- I think they were. I think, especially in retrospect, their nerdiness was calculated and just as much a bid for mainstream accessibility as covering an 80s song would be now. And it's kind of sad, because, like, truly, I really did love them quite intensely. This was actually on our list, one of the ones that, like, was introduced to me really in high school. And when I first heard the Blue Album, I was like, wait, these like nerdy D&D kids are like interested in all the same pop culture stuff as me but like writing these really cool heavy guitar rock sounds and like they're produced by Rick Ocasek from The Cars which was another like great pop rock 80s band. A lot of the things about Rivers Cuomo's like lyrical sensibilities which are pretty misogynistic, pretty racist in a lot of ways um, became more obvious. Ironically even though they've persisted I don't think they hold up as well now. 
Well, they don't say, like, 1994 to me, like, so much of the rest of this does. Like, they feel slightly out of time. That's also fair. And I don't... Yeah, I don't... They're not grungy whatsoever. Yeah. No, I mean, they have, like, the distorted guitars. Like, when I hear it, I'm like, there's no reason this should sound different than, I don't know, Black Hole Sun. I mean, (laughs) they're different, obviously. But, like, it's, it's more of a, like... I know it because I know it's Weezer and I like I just my brain knows like not to put that in the same box. Well, and funny enough, Rivers Cuomo, like all of his guitar was influenced by hair metal, like his whole approach to all of that and also to pop songwriting was very much taken from like the 80s metal bands. Yeah, I mean, like, Undone, he said, was trying to be, like, a very, like, sad song. And it's dorky, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's funny. Uh, and I feel like, yeah, there there's just this, like, kind of inescapable um, dorkiness that I think works really well on Buddy Holly because it's, for one, evoking, like, a specific person who is kind of, like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a very old artist that, you know... It, is it very hipstery to like name drop someone from the fifties? I mean, the first few lyrics are, what's with these homies dissing my girl? Why do they got a front? It's like an old person being like, I'm hip with it. Right. <laughs> Why are you on my lawn? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I think that this is their probably best song altogether. Like, I'm. this is another one that I can kind of, like, always listen to and be happy, even though it's kind of dorky. <laughs> oh, say, say It Ain't So is... That's my karaoke song. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Because I, I don't think of it as a wizard song. I like the acapella version a lot more. <laughs> See, to me, that's the most wizard song. Like, I don't know. Right? Yeah. Uh, Your drug is a heartbreaker. <laughs> yeah. Buddy Holly was originally uh, not Mary Tyler Moore and Buddy Holly, but Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Mm. Which, oh, I look just like Ginger Rogers? In the, rhymes, in the rhyme scheme. Yeah, it was like a slightly different. It was like you dance like Ginger Rogers oh, okay. or something. But yeah, they changed it. Also in May was Beastie Boys' Ill Communication. They were already a big band, Fight for Your Right to Party, lots, oh, of, yeah. lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the singles uh, from this album that kind of hit it big were Sabotage, which is one of their, I think, like iconic songs, and uh, Sure Shot, which is a song that I only know when I hear it. And I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, uh-huh. I know that one. We shall move on to June, which saw the release of Stone Temple Pilots' Purple. Stone Temple Pilots, uh, the frontman is Scott Weiland. They were originally named Mighty Joe Young. (laughs) 
They had already broken out with their debut album, Core, but Purple was the first big release after Kurt Cobain's death. So the public was like very hungry for something that had that kind of sound to it. And so it really benefited from, you know, just like the public, like wanting to kind of invest all that energy and and excitement into another band. So they picked up the slack. Is this the <laughs> band that it's like, and I hear you. Yes. Well, I don't, which song is that? I hear, I hear, is this all of the bands that we're talking about? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Partially. I mean, I think there's more, there are bands that are more like that than Stone Temple Pilots, but they're one of those. Yeah. Uh, the first yeah. single was The Big Empty, uh, which was on the soundtrack to The Crow. Uh, the song was originally titled Only Dying, but changed because uh, Brandon Lee was killed on set. Oof. The soundtrack also had Nine Inch Nails, Rage Against the Machine, Violent Femmes, so a lot of... Um, Mm. Violent sounding bands, and it won an MTV Movie Award for Best Song from a Movie. Smoke a cigarette and last no more. These conversations kill. Falling faster in my car. When I make fun of grunge, I think I'm making fun of Stone Temple Pilots. And that's not saying that I think they're bad. It's that his voice is just so... It's very distinct. Yeah. See, I think that's... I think that's Pearl Jam. I think that's Eddie Vedder. Ultimately, it's both in my brain. <laughs> I think it is. I think it is. But I also do think, like Chris was saying, there was more going on to these songs. I thought Scott Weiland was a really good singer and songwriter, and I like that the songwriting part of that didn't always like get drowned out by super loud guitars. I totally see what you mean as far as like them arriving at the right pop cultural moment to really hit it big. But I like that Big Empty has that loud chorus, but its whole verse is this really slinky, quiet, like menacing thing that really draws you into the song. And I think Scott Weiland's lyrics often nail that combination of specificity and vagueness that's dark and enigmatic, but doesn't literally dictate what the songwriter is feeling right at that moment. Yeah, I think that they are a good kind of like, uh, I don't know, surrogate for Nirvana in a way. They're, they're different, uh, but the lyrics are both, yeah, like very specific. Like uh, the chorus of this is her dizzy head is conscience laden. <laughs> it's very not like banal, you know, it's, it's a very specific lyric and yet kind <laughs> of doesn't mean anything. Or like his lyrics are very, like he's said that he basically likes to evoke visuals and it's kind of up to you to like kind of put those together almost in a like sort of cinematic way and get what the song is about. Also, I mean, he was pretty much for his whole life struggling with drug addiction and specifically heroin at this time. So a lot of the songs are about that. And I think there is a real menace to Stone Temple Pilots that I've always really enjoyed. In fact, they're one of my favorite bands, probably. And I think it's because they're kind of hard to define and a little hard to pin down. I don't know. Like, their music is kind of, like, it's a lot of different styles. Like, it, it is very grunge in certain ways, but it goes off into a lot of different directions on different albums. Um, and so, as dorky as Weezer is, I think, like, to me, like, Stone Temple Pilots sort of epitomizes cool in a lot of ways. Like, it's just, like, like I know when I first, like, bought a Stone Temple Pilots album, 
I felt awesome. Like, I was like, I'm awesome. I'm listening to Stone Temple Pilots. To me, Stone Temple Pilots feels like a band that will just always be of the 90s. And it's just like an old album collecting dust if you were into, like, alternative then. But I think it was the same Weenie Roast. I think it was in 2012. If you don't know, it's a festival in Orange County. (laughs) I think it was the same one that Hole was playing at. Stone Temple Pilots were like the headliner. I was only there because I was there for work. And I was like, Stone Temple Pilots? That's like, it felt like in 2012, it was just very strange to me that they were headlining. I was like, I'll stay for two songs before like beating the rush out. And people are so fucking into it. And I was like, oh shit. Like, I'm the odd man out here. Well, and they had hits. (laughs) They had really big hits across a lot of albums. Their next two albums I owned. I did not own this album until much later, but their next album was called Tiny Music, Songs from the Vatican Gift Shop, which I think is a great uh, album title. Uh, And the first one that I actually owned was their album called Number Four. Both of those albums, I think, are fantastic. Oh, yeah. They really didn't have anything that was like great i think after like 2000 basically but across those first four albums i think like they are fantastic i'll check them out and chris is really spot on in that like stylistically they are all over the place and also scott wyland like in between different stone temple pilots albums released a couple particularly eclectic and almost like jazzy at some point solo albums that are really really good stone temple pilots was one of the ones in the list that was biggest for me in 1994 Uh, stp were first played for me at the summer camp that was actually at my elementary school. One night every summer, we would have a lock-in, like a overnight camp experience at summer camp where we would like stay at the school overnight in tents on the football field. Wait, how old were you at this point? This was fourth grade. Okay. So I remember one of my friends who was a guy who used to make fun of me and try to bully me before I made friends with him. We were like hanging out early on when you could like hang out on your own time before the scheduled activities. And he like played Stone Temple Pilots for me like on his Walkman. It was this album that he played and we'd skip a song here or there, but it blew my mind that there was this whole kind of music that was very like melodic like Nirvana was, but wasn't like all loud screaming like punk. And it also wasn't like fragile singer-songwriter stuff. And so SCP were never one of my favorite bands, but they always had songs that I really, really enjoyed. Um, and I always kind of appreciated the the different kind of musical styles they incorporated into it. Yeah, another, I think, great song off this album is Vaseline. Which, again, like, when I was researching for this, like, just kind of loved the backstories that it's about flies getting caught in Vaseline and that that is this metaphor for him, you know, knowing that, like, his drug addiction has kind of trapped him so that he's just kind of, like, stuck somewhere, like, waiting to die. Because that's what happens to flies in Vaseline is they aren't killed, but they're stuck and they they know Mm -hmm. that they're going to, well, they probably don't know because they're flies. But (laughs) uh, (laughs) if you were a person, you would know. Uh, And I like that it has that kind of meaning even while it's still such an upbeat song (laughs) yeah yeah pretty sad how it all 
turned out. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. I mean, so many of these <laughs> artists uh, the good ones. are dead now. Yeah, it's yeah, he died in 2015 of drug overdose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris Cornell. Chris Cornell died. As well. um, the lead singer of uh, Alice in Chains. Alice in Chains. Lane Staley died in New Orleans of a heroin overdose. Yeah. I think Billy Joe Armstrong went to rehab, but is still kicking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's easier, honestly, to name the ones who are still alive. Yeah. Um, and Dexter Holland, yeah, he has River just Cuomo. got his PhD. <laughs> I think Lisa Loeb's still okay. <laughs> I don't know if she ever was. Hey. Interstate Love Song is another big single from this really good um, album. Another good one. And again, about heroin. It's about him lying to his girlfriend like while he's on the road saying like, oh yeah, I'm clean and sober when he's really like getting high, shooting up all the time. And then another uh, song that I added to our playlist here was Unglued, which was more of a promo single. I wanted included because it felt so Stone Temple Pilots-y to me. It's, it's more of a rocking song and it's the one that like most like reminds me of like what I love about them, which is just that they're so like, I don't know, aggressive, but like upbeat. Yeah, so Stone Temple Pilots like remains like if you ask me my favorite bands, they'll come up like fairly early in the list. Interesting, I didn't know that about you. Yeah, it's not like something I I don't know express a lot. Like it's just sort of like something I p- kind of privately like listen to and like a lot. Moving on to July, I uh, saw the release of Hootie and the Blowfish's uh, <laughs> Cracked Rear View. We will uh, <laughs> briefly alight on this just because it is the number nine best-selling album of all time in the United States. I had it. <laughs> yeah, uh, my mom had it. So this I, song was inescapable. Again, if you went to drug stores, grocery stores, or any, events, any stores, really. Like, honestly, this song was fucking inescapable. You look at me, you got nothing left to say. I'm on about it, you want I get my way. The only memorable thing to me is something I learned just re-watching the music video is that the music video for the song Only Want to Be With You begins with a fake ESPN sports mm, news segment right. with Keith Olbermann. It's like golf, right? Isn't it golf? Uh, yeah, I had the uh, Friends uh, TV show soundtrack, <laughs> and there was a Hootie on the Blowfish song on there that I really liked. Um, oh, no. And I liked, I liked this album, too. It was a good album. I think, like, it's this... easy listening. Yeah, yeah. as like, we were talking about what is alternative music the alternative to it's the alternative to it's Hootie and the Blowfish <laughs> yes I remember they got yes. big because I mean I think their songs were good for easy listening adult contemporary music yeah, he has music. a great voice um, yeah he's a country singer now Darius Rucker and he's a um, black guy which is really interesting yeah. in like alternate or any kind of rock look, music look I think he was always a country singer I think 
all of these, all of the Hootie songs that hit big were absolutely country pop songs. They were like Garth Brooks. Oh, I was going to so say the was name. Like a non-traditional <laughs> face. I was going to say the pop music. The name is what people were grasping onto. Maybe. It's a memorable name <laughs> for it sure. Is. It I is. mean, it was funny at the time. Like you were like, oh, what? Yeah, and they would call him Hootie. Yeah. Yeah. Not his name. <laughs> I have no ill will towards Hootie and the Blowfish, but I couldn't get through this song. Mm. I, heard, I I got through the chorus and I was like, I'm done. I yeah. just, I just, all I see, all I feel is VH1 vibes. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's like for middle-aged white folks who swear they have a black friend. <laughs> Moving on to August. Uh, it's other release of two albums that Seth insisted that we <laughs> mentioned. Uh, <laughs> Portishead's Dummy. And uh, Grace by Jeff Buckley. I didn't get into Portishead until high school because I was way too young at the time when this album came out and I was underdeveloped in my musical taste. But wow, I wanted this included because Portishead influenced a whole generation of pop musicians, rock music, hip hop, and more that have come since. Portishead's, all of their albums really, uh, but especially this earliest one, used samples from old LPs, um, not just like from Motown music, like so much of the foundational elements of hip hop came from samples of Motown LPs, but from classic cinematic soundtracks, like even Hitchcock soundtracks. And that helped shape a generation of popular music that is sample based. And also the songwriter Beth Gibbons songs and her lyrics and her voice are just so mournful in particular. I feel like Portishead were not just a big inspiration on mainstream music and music production, like even with artists like Rihanna, who just sample anything from any particular genre, as long as it sounds interesting, but also a really big influence on other indie groups that later became mainstream in the 90s, like Bjork. Uh, if you've never heard Portishead's music, uh, singles or not, I think you should check out their live album, Roseland NYC Live from 1998, where they played all of their biggest hits um, and their best songs with a gigantic orchestra. Ooh. There's also a DVD of that, and the whole thing is just really breathtakingly beautiful music played very well. I remember these songs, of course, not by the titles, but the second I listened yeah, to them, yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. oh, this. This sounds like it was like playing during a trailer or something. Oh, you know? yeah. uh, Glory Box, yeah, is the one that I that stood out to me the most of this album. And yeah, it was not a song that I would have known by the title, but I definitely heard it probably on 107.7 <laughs> The End. Ka-ching! Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I still didn't recognize the songs by their actual names. <laughs> I had to be like, uh, give me one reason. Look that one up. Yeah. And then Jeff Buckley was the son of Tim Buckley, who was a really influential 70s folk singer-songwriter. Jeff Buckley released only one album named Grace, 
because of that album and his concerts around it, Jeff became a pretty universally beloved singer and was known as an incredibly inventive guitarist. And these are really, really impeccable songs, in my opinion. I think this album, Grace, is pretty much a perfect album front to front to back. Jeff Buckley died extremely tragically. He drowned in the Mississippi River drunkenly one night. Jeez. Um, At least it wasn't heroin. Before Jesus. he could but this was basically before he could ever enjoy his success Aww. or finish a second album. So on the surface, this album isn't the most influential thing in the nineties, but basically scratch any male vocalist we've talked about here or who's regarded now as having a really interesting voice, whether that's Chris Cornell, Matt Bellamy from Muse, or Rufus Wainwright. And you will hear someone describe how much they were touched by and how influenced they were by Jeff Buckley, and particularly by this album. Jeff Buckley's cover of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah that's on this album, Grace, is the definitive document of that song by a really legendary songwriter. And it's become a pretty overused soundtrack staple at this point. Yeah. It's in Shrek. Um, but it's testament... I don't know if it's that version. But, but it's testament to the power of the song. It's Rufus Wainwright's version. And Yeah, I mean, it's it's. there have been other versions that have been all over the place, but I think... Mm-hmm. Like the power of the of this performance of the song is such that I, I still think it absolutely holds up now. Uh, and if you haven't heard the album Grace, I could not recommend it more highly. I think it's incredibly written and just pr- the way it's produced, it sounds like it could have been recorded yesterday. And from your lips, you do Yeah, this album completely escaped me in the 90s. I never really heard any of these songs, I don't think. Um, And it was a name that I heard in passing, but like really had no idea who this was. So yeah, it it was interesting to discover it. Like in just like this weird corner of uh, rock music that I'd never looked into. A corner of rock music that I did look into was Oasis. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Their album, Definitely Maybe, was their debut album. Uh, It was released August 29th. Oasis is famously uh, Liam and Noel Gallagher. They are brothers. They do not get along very well. (laughs) Really? Is that the story? Liam is the younger of the two and is the lead singer, and Noel is older and the songwriter. The first single from the album was Supersonic. So I was a fan of Oasis 
because of what's the story, Morning Glory. You and all other humans. Right. I mean, again, going with, you know, the later albums, because mm-hmm. we got older, and I know that album very well. I like that album a lot. I didn't know any of these songs. And they all kind of just sounded the same. So this is coming from somebody who, like, ended up liking Oasis, but, like, I got kind of nothing out of these songs. Same. It's really funny, because I knew that friends of mine in school with me at the time really liked this album, but I didn't hear any of these songs on the radio. Yeah, it was huge, huge, huge in the UK. It was big here, but definitely What's the Story, Morning Glory was the one that really broke out in the US. I agree, like, you can name, like, songs from that second album, and it's obvious, like, I can sing them back to you, like, immediately. This one is a little harder. Like, I still have to play most of them to be like, oh, yeah, it's that song. Like, it's very listenable. Like, I can put it on. I don't really have to skip anything. Like, it all works. Like, it works as an album to me. Like, Oasis, especially in this album, like, it always sounds like they're playing over a hill and you're, like, listening to a music festival that you're not quite at. (laughs) I was going to say, it sounds like the Beatles slow down 30%. That was exactly (laughs) where I was going to go. was, like, in these songs, I can tell the exact Beatles and Rolling Stones riffs that they are ripping off. On What's the Story, Morning Glory, they definitely, like, came into their own a lot more and I think had a more identifiable sound. It it still sounds like and is engineered like they're playing over yonder hill that way. (laughs) They're at Glastonbury. Oasis, where are you? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Supersonic even has a reference to a yellow submarine. Like, I think the Beatles comparison, I mean, they... They're very direct in their wanting to be the Beatles. Like, that's not a sort of a clever... Their third album's called Where the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another single from this was Live Forever, which is, again, hugely popular in the UK. It was recently voted as, like, the, their most popular song, which is insane to anyone, I think, here, that anything Yikes. that's not on wow. What's the Story Morning Glory would be. Wonderwall, baby. <laughs> and now here's Wonderwall. <laughs> the most... <laughs> I mean, the album's called Definitely Maybe. Uh, The word maybe is... Maybe! They do very well with the word maybe. I'll just say that. Maybe. Maybe. I don't really want to know How you got in gross Cause I just want to fly Lately Did you ever feel the pain In the morning rain Uh, This song was inspired by Nirvana's I Hate Myself and Want to Die. (laughs) Nirvana really has a song called that? Yes, yes. It's like a B-side, I think. Funny enough, that was inspired by a t-shirt bought from a Japanese gift shop that has a rainbow on it and the text, I hate myself and want to die. (laughs) (laughs) No joke. (laughs) And you could buy reproductions of it. Noel saw the lyrics from that song and was like, like, why does he want to die? Like, I think I should do a positive song. Live forever? Noel is always the sweet one. And Liam is like, I'm going to chain smoke and put my cigarette out on this concept. Yeah, and uh, Noel has also said that this is the song that made him realize he wanted to be the biggest band in the world, which pretty much worked, at least for the next yeah. like year or two. There's another song on this called Rock and Roll Star, which, you know, was 
funny at the time because they were very down on their luck and poor. So this was like an aspirational song and basically like, like an announcement. Like they were so determined to become famous that it's almost it's almost a little like ew. <laughs> One uh, interesting Oasis anecdote I found was they had a famously bad set at the Whiskey in LA in 1994. They had fought with the bouncers at the Viper Room the night before, and then they were playing at the Whiskey. Uh, they were super fucked up. <laughs> Liam kept missing his lines and changing them to like ridiculous things. You know, everyone hated it, and they actually like that was their first breakup. <laughs> it was like like a month after this album was released. So sounds about right. And Noel said about Liam uh, when he ultimately quit Oasis in 2009. He's like a man with a fork in a world of soup. <laughs> Which I, that was an interesting. <laughs> about his own brother. Yeah. I mean, this kind of made me want to listen to just the next album. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I kind of want to go back to What's the Story, Morning Glory? On September 27th, uh, there were three uh, pretty big albums released. R.E.M.'s Monster, Dave Matthews Band, Under the Table and Dreaming, and Veruca Assault's American Thighs. R.E.M. was obviously like a huge band already from the 80s. Uh, this was by no means their debut or breakout. One of the big singles from this was What's the Frequency, Kenneth? Which is named after something that someone said to Dan Rather as he was beating him up. <laughs> it's a really crazy story. I'm going to go into the whole thing here. <laughs> Dave Matthews Band, uh, one of the big singles was What Would You Say? And Ants Marching. And Ants Marching. I would say Ants Marching was a bigger hit, but... I don't really like Dave Matthews Band, personally. (laughs) I don't know. To me, they feel more like mainstream rock than alternative rock, too, so... I really like Dave Matthews Band. I mean, to me, they just fit in so much with R.E.M. in terms of what I would call college rock. Yeah. 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 They're they're R.E.M.-ish. And Farouk Assault is sort of notable as being like a female-led band, which is fairly rare in uh, alternative music, especially at this time. Moving on to October, The Cranberries' uh, single Zombie was released. Good timing for Halloween. (laughs) Although it's actually a protest song about um, a 1993 bombing in Ireland that killed two children. So the lyrics are pretty dark, but uh, The Cranberries also had already you know, had Linger come out and they were already a big band. Another uh, Mm female-led rock band. Yeah, and I think it was rare, especially by this time, to have anything that was considered even remotely overtly political become a hit song. Yeah. And it was really interesting because it became a really big hit song for them in America. But also, I think if you're going to check out Cranberries, listen to the album before this. Everyone else is doing it, so why can't we? (laughs) Um, It has Linger on it, but it's just got a lot of really great pop songs on it. Uh, The next release was uh, Smashing Pumpkins' Pisces Iscariot. It was a B-side album and outtakes. They had already broken out previously with Siamese Dream. They would have Melancholy and Infinite Sadness, but they had an album this year. And they also had a song that was a pretty big hit on the single soundtrack as well called Drown. Um, but again, it like wasn't enough of a hit like on its own to be included in this lineup. Also in October was Corn, And that was Corn. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, enough about Corn. <laughs> tried to preview some of these tracks. I, I I, mean, I heard a lot of Corn because they became much more popular even on like MTV, like Total Request Live. Like they would play Corn songs. Uh, so I was sort of forced to listen to them in that way. Total Request Live, not TRL. <laughs> That's before Use it was TRL. Name. We're not on that kind of basis this is yet. Like- Back when it was still Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> Some people might not know what it is. We have we have young listeners. No, we don't. Uh, <laughs> fuck corn. This is noise. It's not music. I literally could not finish one song. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. Agreed. Because we agreed. <laughs> Unanimous. <laughs> the big release from November was Nirvana's uh, MTV Unplugged album, which was obviously a huge deal. Cobain had... Uh, 
killed himself. People really wanted more Nirvana, and so this was a way to give it to them. The airing of the show had already happened in the previous December, so it was just like the releasing of that as an album, but... They didn't release an album when it came out? Like, to watch? No. Wow. I didn't know that. And the band was actually going to release like a, a bigger album that was like more like B-sides and stuff, but just found it too difficult to like kind of wade through other old stuff. So they decided to just release this because wow. obviously there was a hunger for them to release something. This won the Grammy for Best Alternative Album, went five times platinum. It's amazing. Deservedly yeah. so. I mean, like we talked about it during the Nirvana episode, how legendary it was for being a show where they kept starting and stopping to get all the performances right. I think it shows in the final product. It's just so exquisitely beautifully performed. And I mean, it does stand as such a testament to how they were as a band. Yeah, and it was uh, different from a lot of, you know, appearances, like unplugged appearances, in that it was a lot of covers and sort of B-sides. It wasn't all just like them playing their hits again. It is almost like its own album, like all by itself. Pearl Jam also released an album in November uh, called Vitalogy. Pearl Jam, another Seattle band. Better Man was not released as a single, which is weird because it's maybe the number one song I would at least like associate with Pearl Jam. I heard it. It was played on the radio a lot. It was one of Eddie Vedder's first songs that he ever wrote he wrote it as a teenager and was actually embarrassed by the song yeah he apparently didn't want to record it on this album because he thought it was too poppy yeah which is crazy because yeah again i feel like it's definitely one of their most popular songs and one of their most iconic she lies and says she's in I was never a Pearl Jam fan. I've always had friends at every stage in my life who were just really into them, and I never fully understood it. Like, I get it. Eddie Vedder is a, a very competent songwriter. He writes very lovely melodies, but I've always found their instrumentation kind of overly simplified and, again, not to call it middlebrow, but kind of middlebrow. I get yeah. nothing out of the Pearl Jam songs. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a big Pearl Jam fan either. And also, I immediately think of Jeremy's. <laughs> 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 And that will bring us to December and the last release of 1994 that was a really big deal. And that is Bush's 16 Stone. A hot release of Bush. God. <laughs> uh, Frontman is Gavin Rossdale. The singles were Everything Zen, Little Things, Come Down, Glycerine, and Machine Head. Like half of this album went number one, yeah, I feel yeah. like. It's insane how many hits this album had. I can't remember if I had this or Razorblade Suitcase. You probably had both. But because when I heard Glycerine again, I was like, oh, this song. (laughs) And even Machine Head sounded very familiar. But um, I want to say that I just bought the albums because he was into, he was like dating (laughs) uh, Gwen Stefani back then. Well, not yet. (laughs) Not yet, but maybe I... Yeah, you bought them later. Later, yeah. But he was super hot British guy. Yeah. This in the way I think carries on the sound of Nirvana the most from anything else. Like, I I really like all this music and I, I think like they're good, but I also think that 
of everything, it feels the most like an imitation of Nirvana. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, um, like, Come Down, I, I love that song. Just, like, the lyric, like, I don't want to come back down from this cloud is so evocative, and it might be about drugs. <laughs> I think he says it's not about drugs, even though they say shoot up in it. It's just, like, a really, like, energetic song, so is Machine Head. They're very fun to listen to, and yet, like, they just have less substance than Kirk Cobain's songwriting does. Also, like, the moment I first saw Gavin Rossdale, it probably was in one of these music videos. I took one look at that motherfucker and was like, you could easily be straight edge. I would never believe that you would actually have a drug problem. It was especially interesting listening back to these now, because these were also, like, Bush were one of the first bands that, like, I would hear them on the radio all the time, and Chris, I think you're exactly on the right track, where, like, they were the ones who were most consciously trying to, like, ape Nirvana's sound in the, the loud, quiet kind of dynamic switch off between that, specifically in the kinds of guitar effects that they used. I feel like I could even see through the kind of staginess and the performative nature of the songwriting, like, even at the time, but especially in retrospect. I don't really buy that Gavin Rossdale is ever all that tortured about anything. Like, he seems like a pretty well-off guy who's, like, doing yoga and eating macrobiotic or whatever it is. Like, the way that he sings and writes and what he writes about in his songs always kind of make me feel like there is a wall of glass between him as a performer and what he's actually singing. So, like, especially in retrospect, and especially with those, like, heavier songs like Come Down, I don't really feel like I get that much insight into him as a songwriter, as a voice. Yeah, I agree. I feel like he's kind of posing, like, Come Down, like I said, has some drug-sounding references, and yet, like, yeah, I don't buy him as an addict. I mean, as far as I know, he isn't, or you know, hasn't been. It does feel like he He's kind of putting on like a Nirvana costume yeah. uh, for his songs, and it works in a way. Like they're very listenable. Like I think this album is good. Like I listen to the rest of the album. Like most of it's pretty good. And yet, yeah, it doesn't feel authentic. Like, like again, like Nirvana feels kind of dangerous and a bit unhinged. And I definitely don't get that sense from Bush. Like I'm never actually like frightened of Bush. The exception I will say is Glycerine, which I think is a beautiful song and feels much more authentic. I think maybe it's striving to be like a very pretty song because it is a very pretty song. But to me, it feels more in the vein of like what maybe Gavin Rossdale should be singing, which is like a very lovely love song. This song, like you were saying, Becky, just took me back. Like I remember hearing this when I was like 15 or so, 
you know, someone's playing it like at a party and I was just like, <gasps> like, <laughs> like when you're a teenager, like it just feels like such a like epic ballad. And yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and I mean like glycerine, especially I remember my friends in like fourth grade playing this song and like, I'm pretty certain that we played it at like my fourth or fifth grade dance. <laughs> like it was a kind of like play the song at the dance, yeah. slow dance, slow jam kind of situation. I did not play it <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it was the song that you could be 15 and, 16 and kind of edgy and like you know like sit around and be like mm, like i'm in love with someone who doesn't like me back or you know whatever it is like it's yes. like a safe but very sad song you know yes like yes. safely sad safely sad i'm never alone i'm alone all the time are you at one Steals, when we rise, it's like strawberry fields. I treated you bad, you bruised my face. Couldn't love you more, you've got a beautiful taste. Even Gavin Rossdale, he called it ancient and mystical. Like he said, he felt like it was being written through him and that he was a conduit to it. So even for him, it had sort of a a different power than, you know, kind of the rest of their music did. Mm. Did we get through them all? (laughs) We did. (laughs) Oh my God. I have to say that this is a crazy year. Completely. There are so many songs that even if I don't know the title, the second I hear them, I'm like, oh, I know that song. And that was 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Do you think in like... I can't even think of... What year it is now. (laughs) But, like, just pick a year from the last 10 years. Do they have, in one genre of music, are there this many songs that hold up the test of time? There are not even two. (laughs) There really aren't. Yeah, I mean, like, to think of, like, any songs from now having this kind of impact is... I have two major takeaways from listening to all these songs. One is West Coast, Best Coast. (laughs) Because most of these bands were from either Washington or California. Without dispute. <laughs> Absolutely. The second is a little more profound. Uh, <laughs> I feel like 1994 really was like a year that like created alternative music, where the rock sound really kind of splintered off into a lot of different dr- directions. Like the early 90s, the rock sound was pretty unified. It was you know, mostly grunge and probably some, like, mainstream stuff. But I think, like, this was the year when it kind of went off in this, like, punk direction and Britpop and here and there. And, like, in, in mainstream music, like, I think, like, this was sort of also Alternative's kind of last year of being, like, a dominant force in culture because, like, in the next year, you know, you had Notorious B.I.G. and TLC and Tupac and Coolio kind of emerging. And, and hip-hop really kind of took over as, like, the dominant cultural force us up until like sort of the Britney wave of like teen pop and stuff. So I guess it did kind of become an alternative by the time I listened to it. But this year feels very defining, partially because of Cobain's death, partially because all of these songs came out and just like they obviously like lasted, like they were played like constantly like through the 90s. 
to the extent that I didn't know most of them were from 1994. A lot of them, I would have said, came out like in 96 or 97. I really kind of enjoyed this look back at this year and, and all of this music. And for something that we're calling like alternative music, I just think it's so astounding, like how different almost all of this music sounds from each other. What was your favorite song that we covered? I have a top five. Oh, God, here we go. <laughs> but I'll, I'll pick one. But I did this before you even asked that question. <laughs> Because I was like, what, like, are the, like, if I was creating, like, a five essential songs. Okay. It would be Loser, Beck, Closer, Nine Inch Nails, Longview, Green Day, Glycerine, Bush, and Come Out and Play by The Offspring. Sorry, Weezer. Sorry, Oasis. <laughs> so Loser's first? Not necessarily. That that was just the order they came to me in. Maybe in a way, but also, I don't know, maybe Come Out and Play. I mean, I really like Green Day. <laughs> so maybe any of these. <laughs> Definitely maybe any of these. Seth? Um, rock and roll lifestyle, I think, wow. was definitely way up there for me. Loser from Beck is still just totally timeless. I would definitely say that those two were my top two. And I mean, also just any song by Jeff Buckley ever, because there are so few of them and they're all perfect. The answer is closer. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's definitely up there for me too. I, I love Green Day and I love those songs, but Closer stands out amongst all of these. Well, yeah, Dookie, like, as an album, and, like, Green Day's whole sound is so, like, similar that it's hard to pick out, and like, one song versus another song. Yeah, like, Basket Case was close, but it's it's closer. I See, I was kind of expecting it to be Green Day. No. Like, if, if you were to pick top five, that they would all be Green Day. Yeah. <laughs> but good for closer. Bite my lip and close my eyes. <laughs> and that's all the paradise we have time for in this episode of When We Were Young. On our next episode, we're doing the complete opposite of this episode. <laughs> we're going back to 1939, 37, I 37 think. with Disney's first five or so features. I think we might be skipping one in there, but we're going to be doing Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Dumbo, Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Bambi. Disney's classic period, if yes, you will. Yes, they're, they're very classic. Classic, classic, because it's the first five or so animated movies they've ever released. We want to love you like an animal in the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> we want to snuggle you like an animal. <laughs> and we'll snug you like an animal on the next episode of When We Were Young. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. Follow us on all the social medias and subscribe to us and review us on iTunes so that more people will hear the show. I've been Seth Pearson. I'm Becky. He's soy un perdedor. Bow, down, bow, down, bow.